Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? Welcome to one more episode of the special Reset Roundtable edition of Waypoint Radio. Uh, this is the final two-parter, uh, and it's, it's you know, Dexter plus all Waypoint people this time. Uh, the first one is about gaming under COVID, um, and that is going to be me uh, along with Gita. Uh, and then the second one is, the, is like a top 10 games of the 2010s conversation. Uh, and that is Dexter, me, Gita, and Kato. Uh, very excited to have Kato show up on, on one of these reset uh, episodes. Um, the full episodes probably give a lot more context, obviously. Uh, those those air on Vice TV this week. Um, I also know and can say now that months down the line, we were going to release all these episodes online in some format. Not Obviously not just the audio that you're listening to now, but the full video episodes, which is very exciting because I know that Basically, no one watches TV uh, who listens to this. Um, I don't even have cable. I literally cannot watch the show that I'm on many episodes of, unfortunately. Uh, so, so yeah, so so excited about that. I want to thank everyone again on the Reset crew, both in front of and behind the scenes. I want to thank everyone who was a guest uh, or, uh, or or an interviewee. Um, uh, you know, the the everything everything uh, around the show has been really fun. Uh, I think I don't know if I've said this publicly yet, but I think it's been very. When we first found out that this show was going to happen. Uh, or that it was in the works that people at, at the kind of Vice TV side of the company wanted to talk to us about it. Uh, Patrick and I especially couldn't help but laugh because, like, this is this was one of the original promises Vice made us is that we would get to in- be involved in in helping to shape some sh- sort of television show around games in which in which complex topics could be explored. And you know, reset like all TV shows is an imperfect TV show. We made it in the middle of COVID. Uh, you know, where we were not uh, uh, the, the only people making the the episodes, and so there are different people t- t- tackling different topics. Obviously, for me, like I, there's so many topics I wish we could have gotten to. Um, uh, and in fact, there are interviews that we lined up but like you would have to go overseas to shoot them and with covid that wasn't going to happen um uh and and so i hope we get another season another chance to do it um thank you to everyone who's who's listened to these episodes over the last couple of uh weeks because uh they've been really fun to record and and it's it's really cool to see the space given to long long form conversations about really you know important topics in 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 our space uh, so yeah, I'm going to get out of your way and let you finish this final pairing of episodes. Next week, we'll be back to the standard Waypoint Radio on Friday, uh, also obviously on Tuesday mornings. Uh, so look forward to those, and uh, and yeah, peace. We're back, and it's time to break it down with the Reset Roundtable. Join me this time for Motherboard staff writer Gita Jackson and the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker. What's up, y'all? Good to be here. So we are seated very far away from each other for a very specific reason, and that is because... Quarantine's still going on. So how y'all doing? It's rough. 
I don't know. You were the first part. These, this is it. This is the closest I've been to people who are not my roommate yeah. in months. So we, we were both in New York for early quarantine yes. last year. Mm -hmm. And you were not based in New York, though. You no, I was in L.A. So right now, Los Angeles seems to be uh, popping off, as the kids would say. That, yes, as the as the youth would say, yeah. is popping off and lit and all the other words that I would yeah. never use. Coronavirus in a yeah. is really getting down in Los Angeles right now. <laughs> Are you doing okay, or do it's you feel like your city? Because here's the thing for me was, yeah, 2020 was like living in your city, but also missing living in your city mm -hmm. very because much because everything was shut down. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. You're cramped yeah. up inside. And Even it, your takeout places, not a guarantee, not you know, a guarantee. not For a guarantee real. that For they real. would be open. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just jump back to where we were earlier, but um, just Animal Crossing, man. Nintendo, I don't think wanted this. Obviously, they couldn't ask for this, but in those early few weeks, Nintendo in March, Animal Crossing was the game of the pandemic in the fun way. Right. Yeah. It was right. the on-ramp in a way. People were going on dates in Animal Crossing and stuff like yeah. that. People were figuring out how to have their birthday parties in Animal Crossing. Uh, there, I know I'm that not there sure was... I saw dates. No, oh, dates I have happening. a story. Absolutely. About a story this, now. A man who not only took a person on a date in Animal Crossing, a friend of a friend, my old roommate, Raven, he, he took a woman on a date in Animal Crossing, but he also had like pre-made just for the purpose of taking people on dates there, like a date spot in his wow. town where he had red roses shaped like a heart and everything. Wow. And like you a said little people. Place Wait, you said people? Like is yeah, there multiple? She was not gonna she was not the first person taken to that date spot. Okay. It wasn't just for her. I respect it was the game. Like people. I respect. <laughs> okay. I didn't like this before. I like it now. This is. I respect <laughs> the hustle. <laughs> okay. If it was like a one-on-one, like, oh, you know what, my girlfriend Marie, she really loves Animal Crossing. I'm gonna make a spot for her in Animal Crossing. But if this is like mass production, this I need a, a date spot. This, this is a hustle. This, this, this was is a not, hustle. You're right. This was not someone tagging Marie. I love you. Right. Please marry me on a bridge. This was someone tagging. Please marry me, comma please on a bridge. <laughs> as Tinder. Yeah, yeah. You're here for encounters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in yeah. Animal Crossing. Like, I respect it. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they did actually end up in a relationship, though. So it worked out. Oh. Yeah. I don't know if they're still together. So I don't know if they're still together. The William Gibson quote, the street finds its own uses for things. Right? <laughs> Man. Out Yo, here. This, out that here is amazing. Fucking digital street. Just happen, happen to walk by, you know, and just, just oh, flash me... how many turnips you got. Just... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Quick, quick little flex over here. I got but yeah, that was like the story yeah. for gaming in, in from March through the early summer was mm -hmm. getting through the week with Animal Crossing. And for me, the thing with it was, I think it's two things. One is it was a socialization thing. You could see your friends there. You could show off new looks. You could like do all that stuff. But it was also structure. It was also yeah. like, okay, the turnips show up on Sundays. You then sell them throughout the week. Okay, what? Who is here today? Who is here with the new new clothing or new side quest or new whatever it is? And yeah. that structured the day because you weren't going into the office anymore. You didn't have your commute. You didn't have all that stuff that you need to kind of fit your your life into a schedule. Mm -hmm. And it kind of eased me into work from home every mm -hmm. day of the week and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I th I think one of the really weird things about Animal Crossing is I think if you were paying attention. I think a lot of people got a preview of what things were going to look like from Muslims who were playing the game, mm. right? Because that game hit just before Ramadan, yeah, right? And so you had a whole bunch of people all over the world who were not able to spend that time with their families. Yeah. Can't do iftar, can't do suhoor, you can't do all this stuff right. with people like you used to be able to do it. So there was a small group of people 
who started holding gatherings in Animal Crossing, just on some fun stuff. Just, hey, what time is it where you are? Oh, yeah, right. I'm about to break the fast. Oh, yeah, yo, I'm just, Yo, let's chill. Yeah, I'm about, I'm about to head out, whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. And and for a lot of people who do not, who, you know, either don't observe or who that's just not their tradition, that's not their culture, they're watching this and just, oh, man, this might be rough. And I remember thinking, man, if I couldn't go home for Christmas, uh-huh. that'd be whack. Ha ha ha! Played yourself exactly. Extremely. I definitely played myself, and I said it on tape. Yep. And and there were and yo, there were people in the comments just saying, "Why is he talking about that? It's not going to be a big deal." Oh, really? Yo, I was sitting here like, "My birthday's in September. All these people canceling their birthday parties. They're going to come to mine. It'll be great." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. 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 And You're still I, here. And I think honestly, I think the I think the crowd of people who were Muslims who were playing games online who were playing games sort of really publicly inviting people in to the island and stuff like that. That was what a lot of us, that was sort of a preview of what some of the rest of the world was seeing yeah. when, you know, people are spending Thanksgiving, people are spending Christmas and stuff like, you know, th- that was a preview I think for when people were going to end up spending Christmas hold up in their rooms yeah. On a Zoom online, call. On a Zoom on call a, like with their buddies playing whatever or, game, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. I know that for me in my life, the social space that would have been taken up by actually going out, you know, we, we're in the vice office right now. Yeah. We're in Williamsburg. We're, mm-hmm. we're by a lot of the places that I just go. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't used to live too far from here. So I used to, after work, go out at least once a week, even as a person who doesn't drink, just to, like, experience the city, see my friends, catch up on stuff, not have it to be dependent on some kind of huge weekend gathering or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. So now the space in my life that would have been taken up, the time I would have spent going out after work, usually is taken up with playing Destiny 2 with Kata right. or in various different Discord calls or Discord chats, just trying to find the way to release that need for socialization that I have. Destiny has been perfect because... It's kind of an imperfect and rote game that relies on grinding, a lot like Animal Crossing yeah. in many, many ways, where I think players new to Animal Crossing were not ready to discover how much grinding is necessary if you want to make things happen in that game instantaneously. I feel like the game is more tolerable if you are not stuck inside for a pandemic yeah. and like You're not... you doing a check-in instead yeah. of being like, I'm going to make an iron mine happen on this on yeah. this island. If you are not like looking at the giant Gundam that's in the catalog and thinking, what do I need to sell in my house to get that <laughs> yeah. Gundam? Then you will be a lot less stressed out playing Animal Crossing because it can be a goal in the distance you can work for. <laughs> yes. um, Destiny, everything is a goal in the distance you can work for because that's a game that needs you to be grinding it all of the time uh-huh. in order to up your battle pass or get a better gun. You know, all my friends have reached the light level cap right now, and I'm at 1207. So, like, we'll I got... get there. I'm going to get there. better than me. Higher than me. Oh, Shoot. hell yeah. Shit. The thing, the, <laughs> one that, the thing that was for me in in uh, during early quarantine that I ended up moving to after Animal Crossing was Valorant, which is sort okay. of like a Counter-Strike, but, like, Counter-Strike mixed with Overwatch, right? It's, like, yeah. the kind of, like, super tactical, difficult shooter stuff from Counter-Strike, but then very bright, colorful characters with, like, loose backstory stuff with special powers, right, mm-hmm. uh, from Overwatch mixed together. And that's not, a, that's not the type of game I play ever. Really? But my friends were playing it, and it was a new game. And the idea of, like, going into this thing, learning something new with my friends, and it was even it was even, like, a group of friends who I... Not only was it like people who I'd known for a long time, but it was people who I only saw occasionally 
before COVID. This was not like my tight group who I saw every week or who I would go to the movies with. This were, this was people who I only saw twice a year, wow. normally at a convention like mm-hmm. PAX or something like that. And it's like in in suddenly that tier of friends, and I don't mean tier in a bad way. I don't mean like I wasn't really friends with them, but you know right. how that is. Like yeah, you, yeah, saw, yeah, yeah. you see certain people once or twice a year, mm-hmm. they became like a primary friend group because they already felt sort of like this is my this is my holiday friend group. Let's try to turn COVID into a holiday. Let's start playing Valorant together. Let's try to like recognize that this is not the norm and like yeah. try to adjust to that. And we had a really good time. It's not a game that I stuck with after a few months, but like I it got me through the summer in a real way. There were different phases of quarantine and different yes. needs that needed to be fulfilled during that. I remember at that time when Valorant was coming out, I have never played Counter-Strike in my entire life. Yeah. And I wanted to hop in Valorant because it was it was it was scratching the like this is when I would have been planning my E3 trips. This would have been I went and would have been planning on what I was going to do as sort of a vacation. And it did feel right. like a weird vacation from reality just because the idea of a deadly virus being the thing that is the most important thing in my life right now, I never anticipated that. Yeah. So it does feel like you were just gone on vacation in a way. But then, you know, as the months went on, psychologically what that does to you is that you need different needs to be fulfilled. And after a while, I did not really need Animal Crossing to just sort of rehash the experience of going outside and having parties and stuff. Mm-hmm. I needed, like, what I got from Valorant was, like, solving a puzzle with friends. And mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed that. But after a while, that is not the only way that I want to socialize. I wanted to do literally anything else. Uh-huh. <laughs> just, like, yeah. literally anything else. There's, there was, um, this, this might have, actually, I don't know if y'all would have seen this yet, but I can just tell you. Um, so there have been some studies done on what kind of games people are playing during quarantine, right? And one thing that I found really interesting that people who've studied this have found is that a lot of people are going back to the games they were playing in childhood. Mm. So for me, I was, I found myself speed running Mario. Sure. Just, wow. and I didn't realize Maybe that's what it was. Read this, this wasn't like, you know what? I should go back and do that. No, no, no. You it read was, that, you read I was that doing study this. and you're I re- like, that's me. <laughs> and it was just, oh, okay. Oh, right? I'm in this picture. Yeah. And I and then, I mean, <laughs> so I, not only did I go back and start speedrunning a bunch of Mario, but I also realized that, you know, the Mario 35 that came out, yeah. kind of that Battle Royale type thing that the Nintendo put out. I've definitely logged something like 80 hours into that wow. thing. I don't really even like it. Wow. Because it's a little bit too easy. You put, you put 80 hours into it. You're not allowed to say you don't like it. You <laughs> might not like it in the way you I don't, like other games. Exactly. Or I don't love it, but I find myself just playing. I yes. would just, when I would get stressed out, I would just get bored. I'd pick it up and I'd put in maybe 20, yeah. 30 minutes, you know, maybe a couple matches. And that was it. But I wonder if, did, did, did y'all find yourself graduate? Or, graduating did y'all find yourself gravitating toward certain kinds of games so what by the time i like remember reality after getting <laughs> covid and like not really being really disengaged because of that uh i do know that like i was at i'm in a different position right because i was having to review crusader kings 3 and all these, these other things but right. i when you just kept saying like i wanted to keep playing these games because i'm familiar with them yeah and the the rote mechanical operations that i have to do they're comforting to do because they are familiar. Like, even though Crusader Kings 3 was not an old game, mm. it was the, it's that same impulse. And I did think that the other game, big game I really got into in quarantine, which was Hades, uh, in the, uh, before it came out um, in its uh, early access form, 
that was another thing where I was like, I'm going to take this game and I'm going to play it every day for several hours because I want to understand every single mechanical process that mm -hmm. goes into making the experience of this game. And that is a drive I have that feels very nostalgic for mm -hmm. me. You know, when you're younger, I, I, my older brother was the gamer, so I was lucky if I got one game because I didn't want, Ruby didn't want me biting his, biting his <laughs> style, you know? Um, so I would do my best to spend hours with it. And so whenever I found an experience during quarantine that would allow me to spend hours with something, then I was like, this is comforting. This is comfort food. This is like eating a grilled cheese and tomato soup. Sure. Yeah. Totally. I went back a little bit, but not all that far. Um, I like retro games, but as like a, again, as a games journalist, you, you, there's such a bias towards what's next, what's new, sure, that it's yeah. hard to make time to really go back in the catalog sometimes. I think that's a weakness. Like I 100% think that's a bad bias to have. Um, but I did end up replaying most of a game that came out, I would say, like, nine years ago called Dragon's Dogma, okay. which is just like, it's, I don't need to give the whole pitch on it. It's like a fantasy open world action thing from Capcom. It's the Monster Hunter team made a big open world, like, Skyrim style game that was focused on really sharp action, like Devil May Cry influenced stuff a little bit. Um, and it's just, it absolutely scratched an itch. Um, and that's a game I've played a ton of times, and I'm just, like, able to throw myself into even getting some of the same frustrations felt good, right? There's a quest in that game that's like, go, f big open world, mountains, rivers, etc. Yeah. One quest is like, I lost my snakeskin purse. It's somewhere in the river. And the river is very long. <laughs> and this is like a notorious quest for people who like this game. Yeah. Because there's just kind of, there's a random chance it will drop or be in one of these places where you can pick up stuff. Oh my and you like go over to it, you hit pick up stuff, and there's a chance it's a fish or a chance that it's a rock, or a very small, like, sub-1% chance it's this snakeskin purse. And I was like, I cannot wait to go look for that snakeskin purse, <laughs> purse for three hours and not find it. Because it's just like, it was that familiarity. Yeah. It's something to be frustrated at that is not, I need to put on a mask to go get groceries, and then I have to stand in line because there's a huge line outside the door and blah, blah, blah. Even that old frustration did feel good right. in a yeah. weird way. That's the place I got to with Hades. The mm. thing I was making it do for me, essentially. Because I got to a place where I could time how long a run would take for me before I died. Right. And then I would be like, I would get myself excited to like face the same enemies again that were kicking my ass. Yeah. So I would get like excited, like I can't wait to die to those motherfucking <laughs> hands with the chains on them that just grab you. <laughs> I cannot wait to do it. And like when you get through that then, it's like breaking through into this new space. But even then, it was a play, the point of the game for me became about becoming familiar with it. Right. So that I could mentally cast it into my past. So that I could have something that I was like growing from and learning from. I could, I could tell time by it, basically. Right. Did either of you go the other way, which was like something that literally was about bad things in the world or, or like heavier stuff, stuff that was not just calming or just frustration based but like something that's like oh this is about a virus this is about a plague you know I, you look at something like last of us last came of out us this yo year, last of which, us hits way different right now in covid yeah i mean it was like you couldn't pay me to play that game in this, <laughs> in this moment like i just like you know i I, I, it's not just that it's dour. It's just that, like, I don't want to stare right into the heart of the thing right sure. now. And when I do, I like coming at it from an angle. You know, I like, mm. I play, I, I, I've been seeking out the, like, uh, I always call it feel bad entertainment. When I just mm. want to have my, my own negative worldview confirmed for me. Right. And, like, the comfort in that. So I watched Vivarium, that movie, almost as soon as quarantine hit. And Vivarium is a movie that's essentially, like, 
you know how cuckoos just knock the the young out of the nest, and we all say that's nature. What if that like literally happened to you, a human being? That'd what be if bad. your life was completely like thrown into upheaval? You could no longer leave your home or see anyone you like, and you're placed with this task of take caring for this alien child, mm -hmm. um, and you're told that you're going to be released, but you don't know when. So you get to see some shades of the stuff I was emotionally grappling with yeah. with COVID. Well, it's got this insane, like, fantasy, like, horror science fiction premise. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way I could engage. Touch like, on that stuff. Like, I think, like, games, I can't play horror games because I'm controlling whether or not the door opens. Sure. I can watch a horror character open a door, but I can't be the person that is propelling, like, oh, Ellie or Joel forward to discover mm -hmm. more about a deadly virus. I, I can't control that. I need them to do that on their own. <laughs> I'll just watch. Like Yeah, watching... I mean, even even now, if you go to videos with Last of Us gameplay, you just look at the comments, just the amount of people who are in there just saying, uh, COVID, right. this yeah. is really weird watching this out. Because it is. Because there, there are, obviously, it's a very extreme version, but there, there are little things about the story that, oh my gosh, that that seems vaguely familiar to what actually happened. Yeah, like it's the, thin. the government it's lying thin. and not having any idea what to do. I think that was the biggest one that really yeah. stuck out yeah. on me. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that the game that came out last year that I think ended up being weirdly my favorite game of the year that touched on all these things around like government failure to respond, what people do under crisis, all that stuff was this game from uh, Aotearoa or, or New Zealand, I guess is like what we call it, but but the the native word for it is Aotearoa. Uh, called Umurangi Generation, okay. which is this game made by this uh, incredible uh, developer who is uh, of Aboriginal descent in New Zealand. And it is about kind of the wildfires in a sense, or it was inspired by the wildfires down there uh, the year before, very similar to the wildfires that hit California and the whole West Coast, you know, Oregon and, and Washington that turned the sky red. Umurangi means red sky. So the name of the game is like Red Sky Generation. Um, and it is this kind of like, it's it's like, what if Jet Set Radio from the Dreamcast was about taking taking photos? This like really incredible dystopic cyberpunk, more cyberpunk than cyberpunk 2077 yeah. ever was. Um, and it's basically like that plus Evangelion, right? This like what? blend of big kaiju coming, but you're just a photographer. Yeah, you're, you're the just, bridge bunnies, essentially. Right, in Evangelion. totally, yeah. You you're are Shinji's best friend. You're Shinji's best friends. You're hanging out uh, in these cities. Uh, everyone is kind of depressed, but also still like listening to music and breakdancing and doing graffiti and like doing street culture stuff and looking for help from the government. But the government's not helping them. The government's actually kind of putting them tighter and tighter into boxes. And it's like, whoa, this is the game of 2020 for me. This is the COVID game. Even though it was made without being about COVID, it was still about kind of geological crisis, the ways in which governments fail us. What, how, how we make art in the face of, of, you know, terrible things. Right. Um, and it's like that game was a salve for me because it could say the things that I wanted to say. I mean, that game with the DLC ends with a protest against the kind of occupying government because of how badly the crisis has been handled. And it's like walking through that space with people holding up signs, you know, shouting or, or, you know, writing, uh, uh slogans about, um, what, they need mm -hmm. and how what they have hasn't been what they need hasn't been given to them is was like so moving in a year where like all I wanted to do was scream between yeah. COVID and Black Lives Matter and everything else, you know? Well, so so did that did that game help you understand or process COVID better? Because I I think for example of contrasting that to say 
Last of Us, which right. feels like almost like it's about COVID. Right. It almost feels like that, but I don't know that that game helped me process it Whereas in any different Umarangi way. Umarangi is a scance a little bit. It's still yeah. about, again, crisis, but yeah. it's not trying to be about a plague specifically. Mm-hmm. And but what it does do right... It comes at it diagonally. Right, you know. exactly. What yeah. it does do right is it says, hey, even in the face of terrible things, people will come together, people will make art. It's worth you know, trying to live a life that is full and bountiful and, yeah. and joyful. The thing that the game doesn't quite tell you, but implies to you, right, is that exactly. there is a character behind that camera lens. Right. And that character is you, literally right. you. So anything you're bringing to the game about what that character would think and feel in this environment, that, that is canonically what that character is totally. thinking and feeling. Right now, all we're thinking and feeling is like COVID-19, Dread, 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 dread. Just right? like intense dread. Yeah. But like this game where I can like sit down and be like, yo, they're breakdancing. That's really cool. I bet I can get a good, a good photo of that. Is suddenly like, okay, but even in the world of this game, those people breakdancing are doing it knowing tomorrow could be the last day that they live. That suddenly imparts this sense of like, all right, we got to push through this. We got to get through this. It's going to be, it's going to be good. And we can't just push through it by locking ourselves in our rooms and just being quiet. Like, while we're in our rooms, we got to, like, make stuff. We got to, like, right. tell stories, make music, do all that stuff, which is what we saw. Right? Yeah, yeah, not just have hope, make hope. Not just have hope, make hope. Yeah. Right. At the end That's of the good. day, I don't even think I realized it when I was playing it. But yeah. Hades did end up making me understand some of these lessons, too. Hades is a game where you play as the son of Hades, uh, as Agrius, and you're trying to escape out of Hades into the real world to meet your mother, Persephone. Um, and... Uh, spoilers for Greek mythology, if you don't know that. <laughs> Hades and Persephone were, were married to, but whatever. Um, when I was playing that game, really, I was just thinking about character interactions and, like, how do I advance the plot? And, like, I oh, I can't believe I'm playing a roguelike. I never liked these games. But after I thought about it for my top ten list of the year, I was like, so I spent most of this year playing a game about escaping hell. And I'm like so depressed, <laughs> went back on weekly therapy after not having done that for a really long time, like had a breakdown and many, I think all of us have had private and public breakdowns. Yeah. We're just like the, the tensity, the tension is just so much every day. And sometimes it just all breaks. Um, my journey uh, escaping hell in Hades was one where I had to teach myself a brand new skill and I was dealing with characters that were encouraging me but couldn't help me more. It was all on me to figure out how to break free of something that was holding me, constricting me, not allowing me to be the person that I want to be and need to be. Mm-hmm. Constrict, you know, uh, and at the end of the day, I mean, getting through this period of time is also very much about that. It's about continuing every day, even in the face of hopelessness, even after failing hundreds of times, mm-hmm. continuing every day to get up and live your life and, and knowing that the end result of it will be, we're going to come out the other side. And I mean, it's, it's rough, but what happens to his, um, Zagreus in this game is right. he makes connections. He's able to mend his relationship with his dad. He's able to have a lover or two, you know, he's able to befriend people that he never thought he'd be able to befriend. And that is the real value in that journey for Zagreus and now also for me. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're just at the very beginning of the end, right? When we're filming this, there's a vaccine. Um, not anyone's had it except for doctors, well, I None think. of us have that vaccine. No, yet. that's why so, we're sitting got, so far away. I got away. healthcare workers in my family, so I have family members who have had sure. it, but yeah. not me personally. Yeah, my parents yeah. are both in the 70s, so now they're, they're on the list, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even, even just to, to shift gears a little bit, I think, so in the beginning of this episode, I threw out some numbers, right? Because if you look at it on paper, the industry, and this is undeniable, the gaming industry as a whole, 
2020 was a pretty damn good year, mm-hmm. right? Sales are up and this is undeniable, right? And obviously this is in the context and the backdrop of an absolutely deadly virus, which has been nothing but tragic. But if you look at it numbers wise, just, oh my gosh, look at this industry, which I think it's really easy to have conflicting feelings about that. But I think even more so, yes, if we look at, if we look at the gaming industry as a whole, right? A lot of money has been made last year, right? Because people had to stay inside. But I don't think that's a whole story because, I mean, I don't think we can say that everybody who is in games was just making money hand over fist last year. Well, and it's not even about the money they may have made or not made last year. It can be about the money they were hoping to make coming into this year. They had to develop games under COVID, figure out how to work from home instead of working at an office in some cases. Uh, events like PAX were canceled uh, in, in the later half of the year. And those are events where people make contact with each other, where you talk to, a, if you're a developer, you get to deal with a publisher who can then give you the money you need to finish your game. Um, and even just from the morale standpoint, I, how many people do we know, how many developers do we know, after a PAX, they go, whoo, I'm exhausted because I've been sitting in a booth showing people my game all day, but I feel like I have the energy to go home and complete this game now to finish yeah. making this thing we because I met friends and people who, and I saw people who loved my game and gave me the, the like, the push I need to go yeah. finish it. And we've talked to developers also who've gone to PAX and showed a demo and realized that everything was wrong. Right. You totally. know, they got the feedback that they needed to right. make the game even better than it was. And that now we're just living in a world without that feedback. And it's just, I mean, from our standpoint, I, have you yet been to a, a game preview event where you're just in your fucking house? Yeah, totally. I, yeah. All, that's a, an interesting and weird thing that's changed. Is yeah. On our side of the, the business, it used to be you would go to a conference room or you know, a publisher rents out a space in Manhattan somewhere, and you go in, you sit down, you play the new Assassin's Creed, or you play whatever, The Last of Us 2, a little bit early, and you get a little bit of a demo of it or whatever. Now, all that stuff is done via streaming, or they send you a build of the game. But like a lot of it's actually done via technology where they're like Netflix, streaming the game yeah. live to you now. Yeah. And that the thing that's so interesting and hard to know is like, well, what's next year look like? Not even 2021. What's 2022 look like, like how much of this stays this way because it's a little bit cheaper or because people get used right. to it and there's some benefits. I don't know. Yeah, I keep thinking about, I mean, in Times Square, there are biz- there are offices that are being rented by major developers right now. And um, I used to work for a company that rented an office in Times Square. And I'm sure it's incredibly expensive to rent an office there. And you have to wonder how many places are just going to be like, hey, yeah. working from home, mad cheaper. I mean, on the video game standpoint, I do am very aware that developing under COVID has been really, really difficult and that you are you're all working off VPNs, essentially, and like, there's the speed at which you can make changes is just slowed down quite a bit. Your machines that you have at work are really different from the ones you have at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you also look at the overhead. I, I talk about the, the, the lunch industrial complex, you know, the, the kinds of restaurants in Manhattan that only exist so that someone with a lunch break of one hour can go and get like a falafel uh, two sides, right, you know? Right. And, you know, those businesses must be hurting too because people are not going to want to visit them anymore. No. Like I, 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 at this point, I understand the value of taking my lunch, packing my lunch at home and taking it to the office, you know? I'm not going to pay $50 a week for that $10 lunch anymore. Well, I mean, I'm even thinking of, even aside from developers, right? I mean, we can go, we can go to say the fighting game community, yeah, right. Which is a community which, I mean, for some other reasons, had some events canceled. Mm-hmm. But the pandemic has canceled basically everything. A lot of things have had to move online. I mean, y'all are a little bit more tapped in with the fighting game community than I am. Are, are you seeing 
what's what's the feeling right now? Are people feeling like, oh, this is a good thing because yo, we've wanted to be able to play online for a while. But then on the flip side, not so much. I it's feel it's like, all about yeah. being in person, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean what I've seen is you tell me if if you've seen different. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of an uptick in like, hey, what sort of events can we run? What type of things can we do that are online only that are benefited by that in terms of like, hey, this is for new players. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's I'm going to do more streams about teaching people how to do how to play fighting games well. Stuff like that has mm-hmm. has ticked up. And but, June and July also, I know that a lot of people in because they weren't going to be going to events, they would right. have just like just for fun tournament totally. brackets to raise money for Black Lives Matter. Totally, stuff like that. totally. Stuff like that has been great, but like the the FGC, the fighting game community thrives in person where you can trash talk where you can feel the energy in the room and like losing that not only for covid but because of some sexual abuse uh, allegations that came out this year also made it very very hard for that scene to thrive this year everyone i know who's in that scene is desperate to get back yeah. into the arena so to speak and kind of go elbow to elbow again hopefully sometime this year if not this year then next and with the one thing I have seen, and like a very tiny positive, like you know, these are all the negatives, yeah. and this is the positive, is it's kind of funny to watch, but every once in a while on my Twitter timeline, I'll just see someone talking about some some new like Japanese like anime fighter, and they're like, yo, but it's got really good netcode though. Yeah. <laughs> like you can play this one online, it's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah it's it works. Good. You know, the reason why like the FGC has been suffering so much in quarantine is because a lot of these games they just don't have very good netcode. And and I know that... And it's just, it's just way too slow to be able to play these games. Yeah. Too much lag between too much inputs, lag, basically. Right. Yeah. In, a, in a shooter, it's a little bit different where like one or two missed shots are annoying, but you are up against multiple different things happening at mm-hmm. once. In a fighting game, you're playing one other character, one other player, and if you if your button press is lagged out, then like you, that's like a huge problem for you. So I have seen... Some developers make a dedication this year to like, okay, we understand why people need netcode mm-hmm. now. But I've also, you know, that is something that I think a lot of people realized all at once was that they don't have an infrastructure for what if we can't meet up in lo- um, right. offline. I mean, I think one thing that, I mean, it's, it's hard to say this is a good thing, but I think there's a feeling generally that, you know, everybody's going through it mentally. Man, you can't be cooped up for this long and, and watch, you know, lose people and watch other people lose people yeah. and then watch all this. You can't go through all this being cooped up and all that without it getting to you. And I think, you know, one thing in the conversation with Dr. K that, that kind of hit me is that for a little while, I think a lot of gamers were just, oh, this is cool. I can stay inside. No worries. And then it starts to drag you know i mean it's it's not it's not just fun stay at home and mm-hmm. ha 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 all these normies are outside yeah. and and they're suffering being inside for a couple of days i can do this all year and yeah nah, with it's not my, really like that with my therapist a lot of the time the conversation is is this covid19 depression or is this just the depression you already have yeah <laughs> and distinguishing between those two is really really difficult right now because when i am depressed one of the things that i do is i pick out a game that i played a bajillion times like the sims or i mean dwarf fortress is like the really big warning sign for me <laughs> where i'm just like baby if i start playing dwarf fortress for literally a 24 hour period without breaks you need to remove me from that game and tell me to call my therapist because that <laughs> is a sign that I'm avoiding thinking about something. 
Um, like video games are a very good way for me to use my brain without actually thinking about any of the things that are causing me emotional anguish. And so, you know, when everyone was just kind of like playing video games 12 hours a day, I was like, I no longer know when this is an unhealthy behavior. Do, 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 do. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's uh, one of the like biggest things for me is like realizing that you don't necessarily know your own your own head. Like you might be like, oh yeah, I'm good. This is actually totally fine for me. I'm totally just like coasting. I'm like, okay, wait, but but am I? And having that like secondary step of checking in on myself and going back to your your kind of thing of like the gamer who says, I'm like this all the time anyway. Like you don't necessarily count all of the things that have changed in your day because maybe you don't you forgot that you get a little bit of joy of like going to the corner store to get your coffee or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. That that human connection is missing suddenly and that stuff can really add up. I do think that, you know, you know, we saw like the World Health Organization very quickly talk about gaming as a place where you could go socialize safely and a lot of those sorts of old questions about our games good or bad like finally we admitted that it's more complicated than good or bad it's that right. they can do good things for you and also they can be places where you can become addicted and blah 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 like i think that recognition puts us over a hurdle finally where we can talk about games the same way we talk about the rest of a media landscape and i think that's a net positive unfortunately it comes in the wake of lots of people dying because of a failure of a healthcare administration to be able to to address the problem and like that is difficult, you know? Yeah. It's hard not to think about 300,000 people dead yeah. and like not just want to yep. uh, jump through that window screaming. <laughs> for <laughs> real, like- for real. Yo, I mean, a, another thing that, a, one thing that really hit me that Dr. K was saying was just that mental health as even a profession, if you want to say that, right, has just not kept up with mm. the needs of, the changing needs mm-hmm. of just the people who need it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think we're definitely in that position right now where I mean Dr. K is on on Twitch having conversations about this stuff and speaking to people who would probably don't feel comfortable and did not feel comfortable speaking to a therapist. Maybe now they will after watching his streams. Maybe mm-hmm. they feel like, oh, maybe this is something I could talk about. But even just having those conversations, I feel like a lot of people did not feel comfortable with that. Right. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing is that as, as Dr. K was saying, there are so many, most people who are providers of mental health care, right? Therapists, all this sort of thing. They tend to be a lot older and they also tend to not embrace things like technology as much. Most mental health care is done in office, you know, with somebody lying on the couch, just mm-hmm. like, you know, like they used to do it, right. right? We're in an interesting position of if you are somebody who plays a lot of video games, especially right now, you're used to interacting with people online. You're used to having a community online. So there, I imagine, and there are more people who are doing that now. So I imagine actually, even as the vaccine becomes more available, there will be a whole lot of people, right? Patients, we should say, who are very open to the idea of having somebody help them who's a professional over an internet connection. Right. But yeah. but the therapist won't be there yeah. necessarily. I mean, that's gonna I, put us in a real weird position. Totally, we're, we're ready for it, and they're not. That that YouTube controversy from before the pandemic about it was about a, a service that was purporting to be an online counseling service, but people found the credentials of counselors was not quite up to snuff. You know, I know that there was also that video game Eliza that was talking that in large parts was talking about the ways the tech industry tries to dis- disrupt therapy or disrupt yeah. these 
these things that do have flaws, right? Like Uber and Lyft, they were solving a problem in New York. If you live in the outer boroughs, it's almost impossible to get a cab. Cab, like that's just something that only Manhattanites do. Now everyone has, ac has access to a car that can take them from from point A to point B. It doesn't mean that Uber and Lyft are good, though. Right. And I feel like you know, there's there's ways in which um, psychiatrists and psychologists as a profession can look at the infrastructures that the tech industry has built for their bad therapy services and think, you know, we have to figure out how to take the basic premise here, which is for being a provider of, you know, therapeutic care, not just to people in my physical community, but in the international community or you know, the national community um, and beyond, uh, and thinking about new ways in which my, my patients can be in access with me. I know that there are therapists I've met some of my friends' friends that have just been like, yo, I wanted to do therapy. Most of my clients live in San Francisco, but I just realized I can live anywhere in the world and keep those clients. Just do that on Zoom. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is the, the, the thing there is like, my hope is that this situation has shown that there is a clientele for whom remote therapy and, and other sorts of, uh, you know, mental health services are appealing to them in a way that, uh, you know, in-person stuff is a little scarier and that they'll pursue that stuff. But like coupled with that is I hope that that industry is ready to keep up with it. Yeah. Whether that's through, you know, I definitely have some skepticism around the Twitch stream therapy office in the same way that I have, you know, some skepticism around the daytime television ther therapist, sure. right? Yeah. Like I think there's pitfalls there. And my hope is that the people who are doing it uh, are able to recognize those pitfalls, address those things, and, and make sure that that on one hand, they see the the gap, they see that there is um, kind of white space there, and they, they fill that, but they but they recognize that there can be right ways of doing it, wrong ways of doing it, and just like to take care as they do it, right? Um, and, and it's going to happen in the game space because, again, if we've learned anything over the last year, it's that the world of video games is not separated by a magical circle from the rest of reality. There's an intense bleed between those two worlds, and the only way to, to do stuff responsibly is to admit that that's the case and recognize that that connection will be made whether you want it to or not, you yeah. know? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some way, you're absolutely right. I think, if anything, definitely this year, we've definitely learned that video games were not some closed-off island. Gamers are not some closed-off island. I think in some ways, we are, one might say, behind the rest of society that has been, you know, marching ahead, I think. And then in some ways you know, we may well be ahead just in the openness to things like, hey, look, if I need help, I'm so used to connecting to people over the internet and connecting with communities virtually. Maybe I can do, if I'm scared to do this in person, maybe I can do this online. Yeah. Maybe that's my first step. Right? The one benefit I think of being a person who works in psychiatry or therapy that has a, is familiar with the internet is like, you know, as Dr. K does getting on Twitch and just talking about his own profession has a huge amount of utility. You know, therapy, I mean, we're, we're all in the black community here. I know that for most of my life, my black father has called therapy my appointment. Uh, he's always got to drop me off at my appointment. You know, how's your appointment? Good one? Okay, let's right, talk about it later. Right, yeah. um, and uh, I feel like being able to, in the same way that television does, bring issues into your home. You are now, you now have, you are armed now with knowledge if you think that you want to go see a therapist. You don't have to be like a person in a community where therapy is marginalized for saying that you have a mental health problem is marginalized. You can, on your own, research this now. Maybe even, yeah, talk to a therapist on Twitch and ask him your question and have a better understanding of what to expect 
and to also like have better value judgment on what makes a good or bad therapist too. Sure, I feel like yeah. because mental health is so stigmatized, it's just hard to even begin to have the conversation. And then COVID, where everyone is just experiencing their small and large breakdowns, we have to be able to just get over that stigma now because otherwise we're we got generational PTSD we got to deal with. You know, it's yeah, like totally. chop chop, buddy. It's <laughs> like an exception that lets you then make things better in a sense, right? Because yes. you can pull that aside. And I think it's not just therapy and mental health. We've seen this with something like the Among Us streams that AOC did this year where there's almost an admission like, yes, of course politics is happening yeah. in the realm of video games. Yeah. Instead of ignoring it or saying like, okay, yeah, but that might happen, but we don't need to be involved in it. You saw politicians, especially politicians on the left say, how do we get involved in that space directly? How do yeah. we connect to people directly where it happens and, and make that a, a space where we can have conversations, where people can get familiar with us, where it feels like we're part of the community instead of looking down at at or looking down on the community, which is kind of like the de facto way in which politicians have relationship they've that had is with what we're used to. gaming forever, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. even though he, like a boomer, he got there mad late, like Joe <laughs> Biden was the only one to offer campaign materials in Animal Crossing. Right. You know, he paid attention to where his voters would be. They would be playing Animal Crossing. AOC, she went to her where her constituents are, where they currently are located. They are located on Twitch. Yep. You know, if it break because we've all had to live on the internet in a way that I think is like very familiar for you and me, and very familiar. I mean, for all of us, let's just say that we have all spent a lot of time online. A little bit uh, too much, maybe. <laughs> breaking down those barriers so that you know you can no longer really immediately tell the difference between someone who spends way too much time online and just a normal person who's trying to survive <laughs> on Twitter. And by you know, it, it's it does reveal. It, it we stop asking questions that miss the point and we start asking better questions about how we can make these spaces safer and mm -hmm. just stronger for everyone who is a participant in them. And also, you know, just in terms of politics, like where do you actually reach the people who need your help the most? It's like you can't just ignore the internet because it's fake. Right. Right. Totally. I mean, I think I think a big thing too is that it's not like COVID happened, the pandemic happens and all of a sudden people scramble to make spaces online, right? These are things that already existed, right. right? These are the communities that have existed in some cases really for decades, right? And so these things were there as a precedent, almost as a safety net for people who may maybe were just a little bit adjacent to it or maybe hadn't really participated in it. And it's just, oh, then now there's somewhere for me to go, right? Yeah. I'm kind of curious for y'all, I mean, what online communities have you been in for a while? And then when COVID happened, how did that how did that change for you? We got a great one. So I have a love-hate relationship with Star Wars, but my boyfriend got Disney Plus through work, and okay. I was like, everyone says Mandalorian's good, I better watch it. They did not tell me that The Mandalorian is just like BDSM TV television show. <laughs> it's just like a guy, Pedro Pascal is a, a, a soft-spoken dom just like beating the shit out of people and taking care of a child. And it, it did something to me and made me feel a certain kind of way. And what I did immediately after finishing a couple episodes of the show was just hop on Archive of Our Own, which is born out of live journal stuff, where I used to read fan fiction when I was 10 years <laughs> old. And like, I was just, they pulled me right back in. And like, one of the most popular fanfics on, wow. and on AO3 right now is a Mandalorian fanfic called Rough Day that just starts out with you giving him an HJ because he's feeling bad. God bless <laughs> America. God bless Star Wars. Yeah. 
Star that Wars was, fans know exactly what they want. I can't follow you that. Know, listen, that was very diagonal to what I was thinking. This archive going, of but our yeah. own is that so... That was not what you expected? That no. was not what I expected, no. It, but, uh, but listen, right. it's, so many people are reading fanfic right now. In December, they shared these stats with me. 1.7 billion with a B hits. You know, they're on track for two, two, for two billion hits, unique wow. visitors. And like the... So many people are reading fan fiction right now. Like legit, like last weekend, the site went down entirely. Like was that like the first time ever, or uh, the first? Uh, I mean, the first time since they like were Hugo like Award big, winners, right, yeah, archive yeah, yeah, of our own. Yeah. You know, it went down in the beginning when they were getting their servers online, but it it went down from too many people trying to read fan fiction at once because now people like that's, it's become like a way more accepted thing to talk about. Yeah. And I love to see that because it's been a part of my life for like two decades now. <laughs> I hate to steer it, but anything game related. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think in terms of video games, I'm just seeking out the kinds of conversations I used to have, right? I'm mm -hmm. looking for the acerbic wit of something awful forums back mm -hmm. in the day. And I'm uh, looking for the depth of analysis that live journal, like meta essays, what we used to call mm -hmm. close readings of stuff on live journal was meta. You know, I, the, that kind of stuff that introduced me to looking at pop culture through a more uh, like intense lens. I'm looking for those conversations. And it's really about finding like-minded people and then regrouping somewhere else. So like our friend Dante started Discord. And just like when I need to talk about like something really specific that I know all those people will appreciate, then that's where I go because I'm no longer going to be able to just do that with uh, someone drunk at the bar or right. like someone in the office, you know? Yeah. I think the thing that, that stands out to me is something you already brought up, which was in the summer you saw a lot, especially in the wake of the Black Lives Matter uh, marches after the killing of George Floyd, you saw a lot of live streams that were like charity-minded and we did Save Point here mm -hmm. at Waypoint, which we've done every year for a different cause. Um, uh, but but this year, you know, we, we kind of got a lot of people together and just being able to raise money for a cause that that mattered a lot to us that um helped us connect to the community in a moment where we were all feeling extremely vulnerable was probably the high point of the year for me Gita was a big part of that a lot of the waypoint community and then like you know waypoint has a bunch of moderators on the like we have a discord we have a forum and like seeing them come together build this event getting to take part in their event and getting getting to like help connect to this idea that we could like as a group push through this thing just like meant the world to me this year so yeah that was Save a big point one. was huge yeah Great. totally i've i've found myself i'm one of those weird people who actually reads youtube comments uh, but very specific channels okay because they have communities mm. right and so i have found that there are youtube channels where just the the person running it it's just really good at fostering a very certain kind of community. It's really productive. And I think, you know, everybody's just making jokes and memes and stuff like that. And it's actually not yeah. toxic, yeah. believe it or not. And I mean, there's two that stand out. I mean, uh, my, my cousin started one a while ago and his is just, he's streaming and he's not very good at video games, <laughs> but he's not. <laughs> just being real. Wow. He's not very good adorable, at video games. Though. But, but it's just, he's just been playing a hell of a lot of video games. And I've found people just sort of flooding in there. And it's really weird because it's really interesting to watch because it's just a bunch of people saying, oh yeah, I'm just coming back to watch another one of Sonic Hits videos and yay, here's this video for today. And it's, it's just, it's been really cool to watch That's because so I feel like all of a sudden 
this little group, which was basically me and my brother watching my cousin's videos. Now there's a few thousand people. It's a small channel, but people coming in watching and just, oh, all of a sudden we've got all these people coming in to hang out with us. That's been really dope. And Did then, he know you were going to roast him on national TV and say he wasn't good at video games? Or is no, that he, a surprise he, for him? That's a surprise and it's 100% the truth. And he can come <laughs> at me because I don't care because I will beat him in <laughs> damn near anything. Dex says fight me. Wow. <laughs> come wow. get it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy to challenge just anybody. I'm not trying to get it with y'all. But there's some people that I'm confident about. And I can get him. <laughs> yeah. I can get him. But um, And then, you know, there's, there's another one I can think of. There's this um, – there's a Mexican – dude who makes documentaries on just all sorts of different video games and i found his channel uh. the comments are just super good mm -hmm. he'll just make something about here is why super mario world is a study in minimalism it's just man what the hell is this and you mm -hmm. watch it and it's just really really good but then the comments i found it's just wow there are communities of people who are who are already here who were before the pandemic, right. who were talking about this stuff that I'm interested in, and now I have somewhere to go. Yeah. And so even if I'm not talking a bunch, I'm not really commenting right. in there, but I can read it and I can feel like, oh man, there are a whole bunch of people out there who are interested in the weird little intricacies of this one particular video game. And I can just, I can feel like I'm not the only person <laughs> out there. I may be the only person in my apartment and it may sometimes feel like I'm the only person in the world, but I'm really not. I'm not that isolated because... I can't say them friends, but, you know, here's a whole bunch of friendly people in right. the comment yeah. section. Here's people who fuck with the same shit I fuck for with. Real, yeah, you for know? real. And totally. that, that is something that, man, you desperately need that right now, especially when it feels like the whole world don't fuck with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you, you know can I mean? say food bed and it means something to every single person in the room, God. it Shout does, it, like, it does hit different, though. Shout <laughs> out to the food bed. Shout True. out to the food bed. All right. So. That is all the time we have for now. Uh, Gita, Austin, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. Yo, and you, thanks for joining us. Definitely more to come next time on Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. Throughout this season of Reset, we've hit on just about every genre of video game out there. This time we're going to do something a little bit different and count down the top 10 games of the 2010s. Looking back, it's been a decade of some interesting contrasts. We had people putting in hours on lo-fi stuff like Farmville, but upgrading to 4K while also buying re-released retro consoles like the Nintendo Classic. We reached out to Reset's own brain trust, as well as some other people in the video game industry, to bring you this very fun but very non-scientific list of the games that took up a lot of our time over the last decade. Some of these picks are here because, well, they're fun to play. Others made the grade just because of their influence on the games we're playing now. 
Today, I'm joined in person, but from a distance, by Waypoint Radio's Austin Walker and Ricardo Contreras, a.k.a. Cato, and Motherboard staff writer Gita Jackson. So in the number 10 spot, Witcher 3, which I think the context that we're thinking about this now may be colored slightly by Cyberpunk 2077. We're talking about Witcher in, shall we say, an unfortunate time. <laughs> yeah, the, the legacy of the Witcher franchise is now colored by this other thing. If we had shot this three months ago, we would all be having a different conversation because it would be... I, and I actually wonder if Witcher would have been in a different place. I wonder. I'm not, I, I don't know if I can say that it would have been higher or lower. Right. But, but it's certainly, you cannot... If we send out a survey to a bunch of game journalists and people in the industry, and we say, oh, what are your top, what are your top 10 games? You're going to be thinking about cyberpunk in the back of your head. And then how you think about Witcher is going to be changed by that. Right. Yeah, for people who don't know, Witcher 3, super well-regarded, won a ton of awards. Yeah. The studio that made that CD Projekt Red uh, released a game called Cyberpunk 2077 uh, at the end of, of 2020. To let's say mixed results. Um, mixed results is a fair way to put it. At the best, yeah. like not only was it a buggy mess and an unfortunate looking disaster on last generation consoles, it also was filled with like you know transphobic content, some really racially unsensitive portrayals of East Asian stereotypes, uh, and a bunch of other stuff that's just like did not hit the mark, did not you know, hit the level that what people expected from the studio that brought you maybe your favorite game of the decade in, in The Witcher Three. And it, it raised a lot of questions again about how that game was made, the degree to which people were on what, you know, uh, was described by some of the folks in, in interviews as a death march, meaning again, super, super long work days for, a, for, you know, a year or two at a time, 80 hour weeks for a year or two at a time is what some people reported, right? Um, and that is, is remarkable to, to be coming from a company that gave us one of the like undoubtedly quote unquote best games of the decade. I think it, it hangs over everything as a pall. I know that also, I mean, it's had people asking me, well, The Witcher 3 was buggy when it came out. Was it this bad? I don't remember it being this bad. And I mean, I think we have to also put Cyberpunk in perspective. There have been game launches that have been very, very, very bad before. It's just that the marketing department at CD Projekt Red did a very, very good mar job marketing this game and getting people very, very excited very, for it yeah. for a period of like eight years, like almost a decade, essentially. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I do think that Cyberpunk has now colored The Witcher 3 for a lot of people who are, who haven't picked it up yet. But I do think, you know, I think what it's led to in some Witcher 3 fans is like reevaluating what it is they like about that game. Like, do they like CD Projekt Red's writing or do they like the universe of The Witcher? And I think a lot of people are figuring out that actually they like the universe of The Witcher. Actually, they like the political um, environment and the political problems that people are, are get into in that universe. They like the story of discrimination that uh, is sort of like, oh, we're racist against elves because we don't have any black people that we're racist uh. against. <laughs> but it, it is like... It is, you know, it is a very, very rich world and has the benefit of coming from a, science, a, a fantasy author that is beloved in Poland and one who has written and developed a, a intense amount of lore and continuity for this world. Whereas Night City in Cyberpunk, like, doesn't seem to have that depth uh, to it. And, like, that is one of the major problems players have with this game is that it's, like, basically skin deep. So, I mean, the CD Projekt Red might be very, very good at just recreating whatever the thing that they've licensed mm. is. Um, unfortunately, with Cyberpunk, the thing is like a tabletop handbook, you know? Right. There's not a lot going on in there. The, the idea would be to give it to players to make their own worlds. So, 
I mean, The Witcher 3 is still a game I want to play, though. When it comes down to it, I'm just playing it knowing that the studio is not <laughs> incapable of making something bad, which is something that you know people thought, really, really thought a couple of months ago before Cyberpunk came out. That CD Projekt Red could literally do no wrong. Could do no wrong. Right, yeah. yeah. Reality checks are important, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Up next, the competitive hero shooter that spawned a lot of clones, Overwatch. Maybe this is a weird bridge to build, but I think one of the things, if one of the lessons from uh, Stardew Valley is, hey, maybe there was a market here if we package this right. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a market that's underserved here. I think even Overwatch touches that a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Overwatch is a difficult competitive shooter where there's a very high ceiling of play that when it launched, part of the reason that people came to it was it had a low bar of entry. It was pretty easy to get into for the first time. It was made fun and, and again, approachable in terms of the character design. There was lots to, like, get excited about, about who's your favorite character, what the lore was going to be. I, you know, now, years removed from that, I don't necessarily know that they, like, sunk all those shots. I don't know that they <laughs> hit all the, the, the mark, marks on that stuff. I have lots of issues with these kind of the ways in which representation is kind of wielded by Blizzard as like a way to get people excited about something uh, without ever delving into it. Very good little boys and girls. So Journer will be the main character <laughs> of Overwatch 2. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, there is a very, um, there can be a very condescending relationship with the way that representation works in Overwatch. But I think that in terms of realizing hey, we can sell a hardcore multiplayer shooter to more people by giving it a sense of character, of place, of setting, and not just assuming that people are going to get excited about jumping around an arena and shooting each other. I think really set the stage for what has come since then, right? Like, yeah. Kato and I, Gita yeah. and I, we've both played some, like, Valorant this year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Valorant launches the way it does, looking the way no. it does, without both CSGO continuing to be popular, but Overwatch showing, hey, huge audience for people who want to care about characters, even in their multiplayer arena-based shooters, right? And I Absol feel like a, a game like Apex Legends really totally. delivered on the promise of the lore and the universe that... Uh, Overwatch sort of promised but didn't quite like make real in the actual game itself where there are you know in for Apex Legends you get sort of lore drops and like missions that have to do around go follow a particular storyline where everyone in the community has a chance to actually experience that as a result of playing the game and also you know if you pair certain characters with each other in trios they'll say different things to each other and that character relationship is reflected in the voice lines even if it's not you know the point of the game is competitive you're supposed to be getting number one blah 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 but i feel like overwatch does need like deserve ultimate credit for being the originator of the character-based shooter which I think is the word, the term that we're using here. I would here. argue against that. I really? actually think that yeah. Overwatch is playing off of TF2's, yeah. like laying the groundwork, right? Uh, the Team Fortress 2 uh, picked up from Team Fortress Classic, where like it was a class based competitive shooter, right? But the second time around, they uh, changed the aesthetics to be a little more cartoony, a little more stylized, and they added character to those different classes. Like, it wasn't, like, the same model of people with just different guns. It was, like, you know, the heavy is this big Russian guy with a giant minigun, and, you like, he, he, that character is embodied not in not only in his, like, in the model in-game, but also, like, through small videos that they would put out of, like, meet the heavy, meet the sniper, meet the, that series of videos that Valve did yeah. for TF2. Um, like really kind of lay the groundwork for this idea of imbuing something that is ultimately uh, multiplayer and competitive that normally doesn't have much of a narrative with a bit of, you know, flavor and character. Um, and I feel like 
given the, the, the space between TF2 and Overwatch, a lot of what uh, kind of, you know, the, that, that TF2 being that precursor to Overwatch, there was also a space where like TF2 had been out for, God, how many years? Yeah. Almost seven like yeah. almost a, that's uh, about right. Yeah, yeah. That, around yeah, seven. So we, so we can't. So you're saying we can't give too much credit. To well, Overwatch. I'm just saying like they, <laughs> I think Overwatch it. absolutely evolved on and like picked up and like I think probably blew up bigger than TF2 ultimately because um, Blizzard also having the kind of pedigree of World of Warcraft, having a huge audience and StarCraft and all that, like taking this uh, idea and like running with it and like they really lean into the character I feel like more than even TF2 did right like yeah. they pick up a, a kind of they tried to or they say they tried to pick a wider variety of type of person um, and like Austin mentioned before they don't always like that sort of representation is uh, you know dicey, uh, dicey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but they like did a, they did take a step past TF2 but TF2 I think has to be given props for being kind of one of the earliest, like to kind of start this idea of like yeah. let's let's give something more uh, uh, humanizing to these characters that are mostly just shooting each other in multiplayer yeah. arenas, you know. And like you know, the difference between TF2 also is like Overwatch on release had multiple different female characters, right? Yeah, you know? exactly. Like I, <laughs> I remember. I mean, it's always this thing for me with representation in video games where I'm like, oh, that's very nice, <laughs> but also. What are these women like? What do they do? Why are they all size twos? <laughs> you know? Right, totally. Right. And who and who is getting paid behind closed doors? Yeah, who How many these black women? folks are on this game? Not yep. just how many are in front of the the camera, so to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, how many women, how are women treated behind the scenes? Yeah. Uh, how are they paid, et cetera? And these are all questions that have happened throughout the industry over the last right. 30 years, 40 years, not just the last decade. Um, I think another thing that's interesting throughout maybe some of the games on the list and Overwatch is probably the one, the foreground, but even some of the other ones, is the ways in which fandom, the, the relationship to fandom has changed in the industry over the last decade. I think Overwatch was this huge swing in that direction, but even looking at something like The Witcher 3, um, uh, existing on the internet went from feeling like something these game companies were embarrassed by, the ways in which their fans would do fan art or would make their own you know, videos with it or do cosplay, all that stuff, to something they were proud of. And in fact, were excited to be able to like put on their Twitter feeds, put yeah. into promotional content, etc. Um, and I think that like that is one of the huge changes in the 2010s, where at the beginning of it, cosplay was like a thing maybe you did and maybe you looked at a cosplay ga gallery every now and then mm -hmm. on a website like Kotaku. But now the companies are putting them straight up in the Twitter feeds. Yeah. Ubisoft uh, is sending people, right. professional cosplayers, to cosplay the new Assassin's Creed protagonist at E3 at various conventions. Exactly. Totally. You know, it's become fandom. I think Overwatch definitely is a huge part. Like, Overwatch fandom at when it first started popping off when that game first came out was the biggest fandom on Tumblr, bar none. And that it was, you could not be on Tumblr without a, like a, at least a minor awareness of who people like Genji and Mercy were. Because you were just going to see them on your timeline. The Sherlock uh, fans were shook. They were like, yeah. Super Hulak Super Hulak 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 Hulak. Like, no, yeah. we run this platform. Get out of here. Like, we got tall white men for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Who are, don't like each other in the show, but have lots of sex in my fanfic. Um, yeah, it's it's it's, and that was a thing also. Where like the major ship in Overwatch for a very long time was Genji, 
and well, Genji and his brother, and then also hmm. <laughs> uh, oh. yeah. the internet. Uh, the the internet. internet. Yeah, uh, Genji and his brother. Well, I mean, like the male male ships. And I know that for there's like a little bit of pushback in the beginning because there were some hints in the lore that Genji and Mercy were actually in some kind of romantic entanglement. And I think what 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 Blizzard and thusly the rest of the video game industry learned from their fans being upset about that stuff was not, well, okay, we can tell our stories with these characters and we have to respect that the fans are telling their own. It was, well, in order to capitalize on this enthusiasm the most monetarily, we'll just never make any choices with these characters ever again. And the only thing we'll ever re like reveal about them is stuff that already affirms our fan base's like, preconceived notions of these characters. Like, oh, the fans want a gay Overwatch character? Uh, Soldier 76 is gay. You know, it's Dumbledore's gay again. You know, it's just that shit. Game number eight is a more peaceful change of pace. Maybe you're more interested in making friends than destroying your enemies. Or maybe you want to grow pumpkins instead of growing your arsenal. If so, you might have spent some time in Stardew Valley. So we looked at 10 through 6. Any surprises in there? I mean, not a surprise, just in terms of I am very aware of its cultural impact. But a surprise in that I didn't really... I guess now I am at a vantage point where I can understand how important this game was to the culture, but Stardew Valley is like, that is a video game that people who do not normally play video games can pick up and play. And that completely changed people's lives. I mean, during the period of time we're all in uh, quarantine from COVID-19, <laughs> that became an incredibly useful way for a lot of my friends who do not normally play games to like fill up the endless amounts of time. Like, not just that, it's like, I feel like this is a very good example of how there's a sort of defensiveness that people really like games have about their big action-y shootout games, the games where you're playing a literal god of war and you can fire an axe in someone's head or whatever. <laughs> and I, I get that because I feel like a lot of people don't like understand the mechanical joy of using those systems to do violence or even just like the joy of doing fake violence. is like, I love it. I do love that stuff. But with Stardew Valley, the meditativeness of that game, it's that is the like the formal qualities of it that people really, really, really enjoy. And I feel like there is such an opportunity for developers to look at this game that was made largely by one person who is very depressed in his basement to to there are more emotions to tap into as a player than just the feelings of violence or the feeling of like hype. There's also like a really intense meditative quality to doing things in repetition and doing things perfectly or min-maxing of the economic systems of a video game that I think more people than you might assume would would really be into. Like imagine if like Dwarf Fortress had good UI yeah. or something. You know, I feel like a lot of people <laughs> would be Yeah, right. <laughs> I feel like people would really get into that. People you did would not really have vibe to do with that. that. <laughs> well I mean I mean to that point, and I think this is an important thing to to wrap your head around, is that Stardew Valley is not a simple game. Mm -hmm. It it rolls the carpet out, I think, to a wider range of players. Certainly, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Farmville was something that that was big at the beginning of the decade. Right. And I, I'm sure a lot of Farmville players eventually moved on to Stardew Valley. And I don't know if so many did. I I, I bet they did, dude. Yeah, I'm like, I, 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 would, I hope it, it's so it's a many game that people, I would hope so. Yeah. But I'm not sure if, if people necessarily made that jump. There were a lot of people who were playing Farmville that, that I know were playing Farmville yeah, a long yeah. time ago. Yo, start to stop playing the it's, Flash game. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> but like, well, my, the, thing, the point that I really want to get to though before yeah. we move on is 
that Stardew is a game of a great deal of complexity. You're, you're managing the timing on your crops. There is an entire like dungeon delving RPG thing. It's like you could do the back of the box thing where you're like, oh, there's fishing. Mm-hmm. There's, you're rebuilding the community center. There's like dating sim elements. There's da 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 da. But when you talk more. to people who've played a lot of that game, they have a, a very strong understanding of these interlocking systems, of knowing uh, how to deal with the weather, of figuring out different crop rotations and, and like layouts to their different farms, of replaying the game on like not just harder difficulties, but they pick off a farm that's like on a beach and like well how do you deal with having sand mixed in with your soil and all of that stuff is like you know capital g gamer shit like that is that is <laughs> you ha- that's eve online do you know what i yeah. mean like that is the stuff that's supposed to scare people away and yet stardew brings in people and so there should be a lot of focus on okay well why is that is that about violence is that about framing the story in a certain way is that about music and art like to what degree does stardew manage to be uh if not accessible then approachable in some way for a wider audience um and, and i think lessons can be learned from that I feel like uh, Stardew Valley is a spiritual successor to Harvest Moon, which was a game for the Nintendo 64 that I think a lot of people did sort of see uh, askance, maybe were too intimidated by it to actually get into it. I had a chance to play it because my cousin uh, got a copy of it, and I, that was the only game he would <laughs> let me play on his N64, <laughs> and I came to visit him. Uh, but it, it is, um, it's... It's not just about framing the story. It like deeply appeals to people's sense like of need to a completionist need. But I think people who do not play games don't understand how much you can get that need fulfilled by a video game. Like if your apartment is a mess, your star your farm in Stardew Valley can be <laughs> incredibly absolutely tight. I know people who just start it over because they like the experience of going from having nothing to having something in that game. It is it is an absolute marvel. I can't, I mean, like the fact that it just keeps coming out with brand new, like big game changing updates, or they, like, they added in a romance track post release because so many people wanted to romance character. I mean, I thought it's speed on the romance thing. I mean, I thought it was interesting to see it, see a game like that succeed because for the longest, I thought maybe this is just isn't going to work outside of Japan because Japan is somewhere, Harvest Moon's a perfect example where that goes back in. That game worked out. And then, you know, oh, yeah. you go back you go back and you look at, say, Tokimeki Toki Memorial, Mackie, yeah. right? Yeah. Dating some stuff, if you're talking about dating some stuff. And that was, I mean, so formative in a lot of people's gaming careers, career, lives, or whatever. Yeah. Tokimeki Memorial also, not an easy game. <laughs> that game is very hard. It's just as hard as trying to date in high school while also trying to get good grades. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's very difficult. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a game that... Who's going to sell this at the time yeah. that it dropped right yeah. back then? And there then, was a market for that in Japan. There simply is not a market for that in America. And there wasn't. And I think there was probably a time when a lot of people were looking at the market outside of Japan and saying, this ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. Harvest Moon comes out and shows it can, it can be done. Yeah, it can I mean, be done. And I think it deserves credit for that. Coming in at number seven, we have a familiar face or rather familiar mask. Spider-Man. I mean, I, I'd like to talk about Spider-Man and the, the game that came out that's not technically part of this top 10 that's a companion to it, Spider-Man Miles Morales. Uh, and just in the context of playing these games in the past couple of years living in New York City, which I think might be a different experience from other people had playing these games. Spider-Man, Insomniac Spider-Man is just a really, really good superhero video game, right? You really, really, like the swinging 
when I got Spider-Man Miles Morales, man, I just, <laughs> my boyfriend was watching me play. And at a certain point, I was like, do you want to just have the controller for a bit? It feels really good to do. <laughs> um, but you play Spider-Man when you're playing as Peter Parker, uh, which is not true in the comics. He has, like, hookups with the cops and stuff. And it's, like, very, very uncomfortable as someone who lives in New York, who's a person of color in New York, a city that's had a contentious relationship with his police, to be like, okay, so Spider-Man is helping the cops now? Set up listening devices all across Manhattan. Mm, I don't want that. up Patriot Act devices. No. Like, it's wild. Well, yeah. It's so wild because that's a game where I think they get Peter Parker right. Yes. Otherwise, he feels like a regular person in that game. Like, he gets evicted in that game and is, like, trying to find some of his stuff that his landlord threw out. Yeah, and he's like, like, yes, that is my Peter Parker. Everybody who's moved from Queens to Fight Eye, basically. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, and, like, I think it hits all that stuff so well. I, you know, again, I think that it's like it's a certain model of video game that's like meant to be as as blockbustery as possible, as big budget as possible. And I think that it's so exciting to think about what they're going to do next, because having played Miles Morales, which was the expansion that Gita just talked about, they learn so much, not just in terms of how to characterize stuff and and have characters who have slightly more down to earth motivations and, and stuff like that. But I think they did really well, but just in terms of streamlining the game making it uh, a little more focused on what's fun about exploring a big city, not feeling like they needed to overstuff it with a bunch of kind of boring side activities and puzzles, and instead focusing on the best stuff. Yeah. Uh, and also just Miles is a great character, and I'm excited. Even in the next Peter Parker game that'll presumably come out in a year or two, to see how those two characters bounce off of each other again in, in whatever comes next. Yeah. it's There's a lot of charm in those games, and I think... One other thing I really, really liked about that is that, you know, a lot of time when video games wanted, we're like, we're going to go like a picture-perfect recreation of Blank City. People who play it will play, be like, this doesn't feel like the place uh -huh. I'm from. I lived in Chicago when the first Watch Dogs came out, and I was like, you, you only put in the blue line and the red line, but you don't have a <laughs> north side or a west side? Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but here, like... I don't spend a lot of time in Manhattan. I'm an outer borough bitch. But like when you got to Manhattan in that game, all the things about Manhattan feel real enough to me. Right? I can identify what part of Manhattan I'm in by the architecture, the kinds of people walking around, mm -hmm. the kinds of decorations that are, especially in Miles Morales where it's all done for the holidays, which I just, very charming it's in so New York. Good. I love it. The, the way that Harlem looks in that game, it really like, it feels very much it feels homey. I don't know. It feels those little touches of the human experience are things that they really manage to nail. Just the way that you walk by people. You might be in Harlem and you see a bunch of guys wearing those black puffy jackets. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yo, hey, it was Spider-Man. What's good? And you can just like go and dap them. And like that just feels I'm like... I'm in New York. I'm in New York, baby. Yeah. When you go downtown, people start wishing them happy Hanukkah. I also love that. <laughs> that should hit different right now too, right? Like yeah. we're not, not being able to True. walk around the city even. Like just pulling up Miles Morales specifically and be able to walk around like a small festival that's happening. Yeah. Like shit, street festival, street food. Yes. Like they got all of that that sense of uh, liveliness of New York right in those moments. Yeah. I feel like uh, all the excitement though... From Miles Morales is bleeding into the old yeah. Spider-Man, which I, which I wonder if which I wonder if that's happening honestly on on the list on the survey. You know totally I mean? right. I, I, people really liked that game when it came out. Like it had been a long time since we'd gotten a Spider-Man game that was very good. I think people talk about the game Spider-Man Two that came out alongside the Sam Raimi movie, which is a great movie. Um, and it had been since then. And and since then, what are the superhero games that blew up? It's like the Batman games had blown up. 
Um, you know, they, that Avengers game came out this past year and did not do particularly well. Um, and so I think that there's a, a contrast between something like the very dark Batman, Arkham City, Arkham Asylum games, and then like kind of the bright, optimistic Spider-Man game where, yeah, like I really wish Pete was not installing listening devices for the NYPD. But I do like that that's a game in which Peter Parker is invested in his community. Yes. Uh, one of the problems I've always had with the Arkham games is that, like, Gotham doesn't exist in those in those games, right? Like, theoretically, Batman is supposed to be saving people and helping people, but you never see Gotham thrive. And what the Insomniac Spider-Man game got so right is like, oh, I understand why Peter Parker would put his life on the line to protect New York, to save New York. New York is alive. It's vibrant. Yeah. It's, it's there. To, it's living. And he's part of it. He's going to help at the community center. Yeah. And, and that stuff, I think, to me, like pulled me through that game in a way that even the stuff that I didn't necessarily love, which is like the overstuffed content, some of the weird politics, like that stuff didn't put enough of a hamper on it for me to, to not have a fundamentally still a pretty good time. I mean, I thought it was just like a fun ass game. I think the the thing it's like sometimes ballet, that's all you need. Right? Sometimes it's all you need. With Insomniac is like ballet, where um, when the mechanics are really, really good and really, really working, you are not thinking about what it is that makes them work. Mm. You know, now as a video game journalist, occasionally uh, when I'm I'm pulling on the right trigger to make him swing, I am thinking about like the people that coded this and animated this to make it so that anytime there's a building nearby to Peter Parker, he will be able to physically attached to that <laughs> building and not a random point in space and propel him forward. That's yeah. a lot of math that's happening mm -hmm. right there. But like when you are really lost in Spider-Man, you don't even think about that for one second. It just like, feels good. You just, it just feels right. Yeah. 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 Word. And at number six, the game that was all for a loop, Out of Wilds. Austin, I, I can already see it in your man. eyes. You, <laughs> were already, you were talking earlier, though, about video games that want to do things like only games, games that have a vision that is necessary, like the, the form is necessary for them to be games. And so the first thing I thought of was Outer yeah, Wilds. Yeah, Outer Wilds like, doesn't work in any other way. I guess you could theoretically build it in real space, but that would be like a mad scientist plan. <laughs> the emotional place they want to take you by the end of that game, yeah. you have to be there experientially. 100%. So, yeah. like, you know, I, I, mean, I don't need to introduce what Outer Wilds is outside of saying you're exploring a solar system that is on its last day. Every 22 minutes in this game, the, the world, the sun explodes and all the, the planets in the solar system go with it. And you are trying to figure out what is going on. Is this a thing that can be stopped? Can I save my planet? But more importantly, what, what got us here? Um, and I think in a year where we, we ask the question, what got us here a lot? And have to confront some very unfortunate answers in terms of how far we can turn back the clock on very difficult problems. Um, it, it really hits hard. Um, it's a game that uses the way games work in such a distinct way. Like in contrast to something like, you know, um, God of War, where all the big emotional moments are cutscenes in which one character is talking to another character the same way they would as if it's a movie. The big emotional moments in Outer Wilds are about something happening in the space between you, the controller, the screen, and the game. You're figuring something out. You're coming into alignment with knowledge about the way the world in this science fiction universe works. The way physics is a little bit different here. And you can solve a puzzle, but also that puzzle leads you to learn the terrible history of the species that first came to this area, right? You're, you're uh, putting together these sorts of like sublime mysteries about about the universe in a way that 
I don't see games even try to do that often, right? You look at something like the Mass Effect series, a series I love, but a series that is basically like a sci-fi military story about ancient aliens and, you know, even ancienter aliens, because that's how sci-fi stories go sometimes. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, who should I line my gun up to and shoot? Um, and, and you can have various, you know, amalgamations of that or, or variations of that that shift it a little bit. But that's the, the heart of that game. Whereas this is like way more in conversation with, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, heritage of science fiction that touches things like 2001 A Space Odyssey or some like Vonnegut stories about the ways in which the universe is just a little bit too big and weird for us. Uh, st- stuff from, from Asimov and Banks, stuff that is like this, this other mode of thinking about what humanity is. And it's doing it in a world in which, you know, you have these two planets, you know, orbiting each other and one of them is siphoning the sand off of, off of that planet and onto itself, filling in all of the caves and crevices in real time as you explore it. Only games can do that, right? Like you could shoot that scene, but you, you don't, you know, give the sense of anxiety and dread or discovery unless you're there experiencing it. Um, and it, it ends up being this just very unique thing. I know, Kato, you, you also played it. Yeah, I was going to say that. And I think that it does uh, it does a lot of, like, kind of existential and, like, wide-ranging, like, question questioning of, like, the nature of the universe and the nature of, you know, consciousness. Uh, but it all it all grounds that in uh, community. Like, one of the very, the very first things you do is you go around and you walk around uh, where uh, your character lives and you talk to all of the villagers there and... Uh, when I mean, like spoilers, I guess. For yeah. I mean, we already talked about the fact that the 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 sun blows up, but when you start the game, you don't necessarily know that. So you're talking to all these people. I'm having a good time exploring the planet that you start on, and I understand that as my home planet. Right. Then the sun goes away, like <laughs> it blows up as I'm talking to someone, right? That and suddenly, all of the people that I just <laughs> so spent died. time with right. are gone. Yeah, and um, the kind of uh, like you know, emotional uh, thrust of the game then kind of turns into something where you're thinking like, I have to save these people, but it doesn't end there. It opens up to thinking about like, um, you know, what is, uh, what is culture? Like how does culture move? When does culture end? Mm. Uh, and, uh, whether or not, um, making something, uh, that lives past you and your idea of society is worth it. If you're not here to experience it, should you still work towards something that is going to far outlive you and everyone you know? You know, it like gets to that level at, by the end of the game. And it's just like one of the few games we were talking about this on a podcast the other day. Yeah. One of the few games where like I cried at the end of that game. Oh, absolutely. Like a hundred percent. I was just thinking about this. <laughs> I didn't finish the game because at the time I didn't have an Xbox controller and trying to fly with keyboard and mouse and that little weird little Seems ship. hard. It's not easy no, i will say no. that but now i do yeah. have an xbox controller and i can't wait to weep just weep from my future and the heat death of the universe <laughs> i mean the, the story of that game i ended up watching a let's play and just uh knowing to know what i was missing essentially and to know like the intimacy of that game is what it allows it, what what makes the game space encompass like things outside of the space of the game Right. right sure. Because it is a game where you have to manage the thrust of your spaceship, and the spaceship feels very rickety when you're flying it. It's and made of wood. Like, it's yes. literally this, like, <laughs> banjo aesthetic. Like, what yes. if a banjo could be a spaceship? <laughs> this is, is that Yeah, Appalachian, but space. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. 
And because it's, everything feels so handmade, because every character you meet and you'll talk to them repeatedly, you know, uh, they are, they, they all are just members of the community and they greet you like friends and family. It immediately like mentally places you in the space of being yourself. Like, you know that that character is, is its own character. It's in the, like, it's a perfect way. Like the thing I always look for for media is what message do I take out of this into mm -hmm. the world? And here, like the intimacy is like something it wants you to take in out into the world. Like to the knowledge that yes, there may be great and vast mysteries of the universe, but what matters most is like the incredible, beautiful mystery of life. The fact that we are all here. We are all here somehow. I, that I, was I, big. I, <laughs> I want to illustrate just like one thing. I know we were like, we've gone long on Outer Wilds, but it's definitely probably my favorite game of the last decade. And I just okay. like the way these things chain together is so impressive. You know, you're, there are a bunch of planets in the solar system. And one of them, you notice, moves differently, which is to say it seems to be a moon, not a planet, and it orbits one of the planets in the solar system at a time, and not always the same one. Sometimes you take off from a planet and you're like, oh wait, that moon is here now. It was over on that other planet a few minutes ago. What's going on? And so first you decide, okay, I have to figure out how to land on that moon. And it might take you hours to figure out how to do that interspersed with solving other puzzles, exploring other worlds. Then you finally land on it and you're like, all right, this is weird. This is a planet covered in plants and like thorns, and you're like, I can't figure out anything to do here, so you leave. And then something else brings you back there, and this time it's this desert world. And you're like, all right, this moon has changed. Something <laughs> is different about this moon. Yeah. And as you move around it, things are changing as you're moving around. Like, why are things, why is this rock not standing in the same place? And as you play the game, you start to understand the sort of metaphysical reality of what is happening in chaos. And eventually, you figure out how to navigate to that space, how to get not only on the moon, but across it, how to find and teleport yourself to another place seemingly outside of causality. And then you, you, you have an encounter on the place that you end up that is like my favorite encounter I've ever had in a video game. I won't spoil it here, but it's like, oh, I had to learn science, not real science, fake sci-fi BS science to solve this, this problem. And this is the first time I've ever felt like I was in Apollo 13. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, Ooh, I had to, I had to okay. I'm in Interstellar, right? I'm figuring out the strange rules of the universe. And to Gita's point, the end result of that is not, and then I get 10 points that say I solved the puzzle. Mm -hmm. It is this sense of community, as Kato said, of, of discovery and thinking about what the place is of sentient life in the universe. Like, what an are you actual do? epiphany. An actual yeah. epiphany. You have epiphany moments all the time in this game, and then they, and then they get you like, nah, you didn't have an epiphany yet. This is an epiphany. <laughs> we drop this on you all the way through to the very end. It's yeah. incredible. I think people would describe that as like a, a literary way of writing, yes. but I try not to think of it in, in those terms because I feel like you cannot achieve the same kind of thing that this game is doing in a book. Totally. It, it needs the passage of time. It needs the repetition. That I need to go get game. a sandwich sometimes and be yeah. like, I can't figure this out. Yeah. I got to step away from this. This is frustrating me. And then come back to it and be like, I get it. I get it now. That rock always, <laughs> oh, okay. I yeah. see you. I yeah. see you, rock. Yeah. It wants, to, it wants to do something to you, the person. Yes. You know, totally. it's, like, it's the difference between like reading in a book and it revealing something to you versus you being the one revealing yes. it to yourself. Yes. Right, like because being right. understanding like the way that the mechanics of this universe work, and then also understanding the like different interconnected uh, relationships that different peoples have had in this space before your time and maybe after your time um, is really one of the things that shines about that. Which that you can't do game. in a book, right? 
or right, a movie like, <laughs> or whatever. Not, the closest not to I yourself. can think is like a whodunit, right? Yeah. You get that feeling while you're reading a mystery book. You're like, I figured this out before Sherlock Holmes did or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels great, except that never happened. Sherlock Holmes is always just like a king of mysteries. Yeah. I'm not going to figure this out before Faro. <laughs> he gets to read a little bit ahead of you. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unfair, I am. <laughs> so let's jump into the top five. So I'm not going to reveal the order just yet. So in no particular order, Here's the games of the top five. Red Dead Redemption 2, Dark Souls, Last of Us, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and God of War. Any surprises? How are we feeling? I mean, that feels exactly like a list uh, crowdsourced by journalists of the top five. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, and so, and so we, this, is, this is where actually I think it's a good idea to pause here and make note of the fact that this list, this survey is compiled from people who are professional game journalists, people in the industry. And I think that this list would look very different yeah. if we just went out, talked to a bunch of gamers, talked to a bunch of players and said, hey, you, what games have you been playing over the last decade? Fortnite. Very different. <laughs> Fortnite. Fortnite's yeah. not on this list somehow, Homie, right? The yeah. dude at my bodega plays <laughs> PUBG on his laptop when yes. nobody's in the store. Mm -hmm. There's so many games that are not in here. FIFA. Yes. Right. Yes. I wouldn't, caught, I wouldn't be caught dead playing FIFA. Okay, that's not true. I have played FIFA. And FIFA's I actually good. Enjoy, FIFA's you know, fine. You know, Why I enjoy, FIFA? I, I'm not about FIFA. Wow. Because, look, if I'm going to play soccer, football, uh -huh. for our friends outside the U.S., I want to play you. the real thing. Fair. I, I, play, I play the real thing. But I what mean, do you say then to the professional soccer players who nevertheless spend dozens of hours playing FIFA every year? Well, if you're I, that good at soccer, I, do you want to play soccer all the time? It's like, man, but, if you're Michelangelo, which is, you're like, I'm going to do a quick sketch. Which is, precise, which, is precisely, which is precisely what man Gordon Hayward was saying, which is he plays league. Right. He's, look, I play basketball for real. Why am I trying to play basketball on a computer screen? Sure. Uh, I fully understand if you want to do that, and I bet it looks, I bet it feels real cool to have yourself in a video game. But I, that's, I mean, he said it wore off. And what I, I would the Vice that. News video game starring Dexter look like? Though? Oh my, you don't want to know what that would look. Like. <laughs> I want to know. Put those stories together. It, it would, it would look like. Would you play uh, journalism let's see, covering video games, <laughs> interviewing white supremacists, and getting shot at by the feds. That's what mm. that game would look like. Mm. All right, that yeah. sounds good. Like, so, let's go. You're the first. <laughs> Naughty Dog Insomnia. Who is who does Yo, that game? You are Somebody want to make it? Let's go. Lead in GTA. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, okay, first, real talk. So. I think, I think, and this, it's not even my favorite game, but I'm a little surprised to see GTA 5 not in here. And, and I'll say it for this reason, right? Because GTA 5, I don't like it as a game. And this goes for Rockstar games in general. Controllers, I feel like I am controlling, I feel like I'm sticking my hands into a day-old bowl of oatmeal. Yeah, <laughs> Every time yeah. I'm trying to shoot something, man, I don't understand it. I, like, I don't understand it. They're like, whoa, we see this intuitive controller scheme over here. <laughs> Throw it out the window. Yeah. Let's do something that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, <laughs> yeah. GTA Online is the biggest success Rockstar's ever had. Not it on is. the list, right? It is, right? It's, it's not on the list, but I think, I think that GTA V, while it's not the first game to do this, I think absolutely needs credit. And this is just speaking as a gamer, as, as somebody in the culture, right? I think it needs credit just for what it has done for the culture of music. Right, because I'm coming from a place right where, in the last in the last decade, we've seen, I don't want to say the death, but the absolute decline of college radio stations. Mm -hmm. Right, and GTA Five and the GTA series, really in general, has done has started, I think, to fill the role of your local college radio station, your local underground radio station, 
or shoot, you know, pirate radio stations overseas, right? Which is to say that if you're a music fan, you know, if, if you're a music fan, if you're a hip hop fan or something like that, or if you're a fan really of electronic, there's stuff in there for you. Yeah. Now, if you're a music fan and there are genres that you could be open to, but you've never been turned on to, you're about to get turned on. Yeah. I think that is amazing. I mean, given Flying Lotus, a radio station mm -hmm. in there, where else would this happen? The only places where we can discover new music right now, if you're like a really big new music guy, you know, the age of blogs is over. So we don't yeah. have like yeah. Buddyhead or whatever yep. giving us the recommendations. Yeah. So we, we got TikTok, mm -hmm. GTA 5. And man, I don't know, people trying to sell you mixtapes on the street or something. No, shit. For, for real. I mean, the, the, early, the, early, the early 2010s were, 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 the early 2010s were when we saw the death the real death of music blogs, right? Yeah. It was just, it wasn't something you could do. And that was where you got your music. I read Brooklyn Vegan every day. Yeah. <laughs> yo, that, yo, palms out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, could, yeah. we could go down the list. and that, yeah. But that died. And then it turned to really just streaming and you're sort of relying on the algorithm. And honestly, I think TikTok, this is a weird, maybe this is a weird statement, but GTA 5 was doing, or GTA series in general, I think was doing for a lot of, music fans and future music fans who didn't know they were music heads yet, what kind of what we relied on TikTok for doing that now. It's just that weird discovery of, oh my gosh, what is I'm, this? I'm, I'm a yeah. hip hop head and here's this 60s song that sounds like punk and yeah. what is this thing? It sounds like mariachi. I don't really know what it is, but it slaps and yeah. I want to know Even everything by this artist now. The last ad for their last like GTA 5, like the new heist, included like a, an African artist who I'd singing, like rapping in French that I'd never heard of before, but like was just like, I must shazam this song. Like, right <laughs> yeah. yeah. My only my only takeaway from this though is they've always done this to some degree. I remember true, yeah. playing uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto Liberty City Stories on the PSP and hearing Dumb Morrow Dumb, which is this like big Bollywood song yeah. that is huge in India for 40, 50, 60 years now, whatever. It's like My from the 60s. favorite and the best Eurovision winner, um, uh, I forget her name, but she is like, she won for Russia doing this like really incredible song that's, uh, oh, and she also uh, protested on behalf of the Ukraine and got arrested there and then joined parliament and is like <laughs> a left-wing like Russian government person now. But she's like, she's on the Liberty City soundtrack also on like, the, the Eastern Europe station. Right. They've been doing that sort of explore, exploration and showing it off to a lot of people for 20 years, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I guess GTA 3 only had a few uh, uh, real songs and the rest was all kind of like fake parody stuff. But as soon as you got to Vice City, people understood like this is going to be a platform for listening to music and yeah. finding new music that they love. So I, I, it's not that I don't want to give them credit for that. Yeah. It's just that that is part of the brand. It is part of the brand. It's part of the legacy. Like, yeah, I just totally. I just have to continue Fair. to appreciate Fair. that. That's yeah. all. No, That's I do but, think uh, it's like a discoverability, as like a place to be a person. GTA 5 and GTA Online is like unmatched in terms of like game space, I think. You know, I now I'm at the place because we're all stuck inside where I am exploring games that allow you to interact and with other people a lot more. But like earlier this year, there was this whole like alien rivalry thing that turned on because it's just like people right. are bored and they, they act a mess in GTA 5 Online. And it mm -hmm. is like a place where not only you can discover culture, but where culture is made. I think, you know, but that's sort of, we were talking about this in relationship to Red Dead 2 and Red Dead Online, where a lot of the time the games that Rockstar makes are just sort of entryway drugs into the, the game, the, um, like the ecosystem yes. of the game going forward. Yes. Right. right. Yes. The online version. Which is, which is, which is a change for them. Historically, they had made primarily single player games. 
GTA 4 had an online mode. Red Dead Redemption 1 had an online mode. And they were like interesting. But I think, again, if there's a lesson of the 2010s, here's another one. It's the turn towards games as service. The turn away from here is a box product that you play and then you're done with it. Right. And the move towards how can we keep squeezing this thing? How can this be your forever game? How, how can, can we you sell you a subscription? Totally. Either yeah. it's a subscription or it's, it's uh, you know, uh, additional content that comes out or it's uh, loot boxes yeah. or, as in Overwatch, as in Genshin Impact, et cetera. Um, or it's, it's, you know, some other way of just keeping you in that ecosystem again. You know, I know, Kato, you're a Destiny 2 person. Like, yeah. the whole struggle for Destiny for the last eight years has been how do we keep people in the system instead of bouncing off to go play something else? Yeah. Right. And you could feel the like uh, uh, kind of struggle there, especially when they made that sequel where they were trying to bring in new people at the same time, and they ended up losing a lot of like old heads just because right. they changed it too too much. But um, I'm personally surprised that Destiny isn't on this list at all. <laughs> <laughs> Look, okay, I love you, this you just game. you just. <laughs> throwing it, throwing a wrench in the whole list right yeah, now. Okay, absolutely. Um, look, th- this game is very popular right now. Right, mm-hmm. Destiny is made by the creators of Halo. Right, one of the biggest fucking franchises of all time. Right, and it's kind of surprising to me that more people didn't uh, pick it because I think it's even though it had a rough launch back in twenty fourteen, I believe twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. I forget the exact date. Um, it's had a steady and kind of growing fan base ever since and it definitely shows the kind of um you know mechanical execution that you expect from halo it feels really good to shoot the guns in halo and like they really honed in on that in destiny and also added these rpg project progression mechanics alongside some really sick lore there's actually a really great backstory that unfortunately they forgot to put in the game yeah. oh, it was yeah. on a website huh. <laughs> yeah it was on a website for the first one yeah um <laughs> Uh, where you would have to go, but the stories that were being told there, the narratives there were actually really, really great, and it kind of kept a certain subset of the fan base with it, even mm-hmm. though the game itself was kind of, you know, lackluster to start. It kept picking up, and nowadays, like, um, it, it, it's just like they're finally putting all that lore in the game with the sequel, Destiny 2, and it's just like this franchise has been, like, through most of this decade, has been the one game that's kind of stuck with me like from when it launched in the early 2010s, you know? Right. We've reached the top five in our countdown to the top 10 games of the 2010s. At number five, we have an elevated take on the post-apocalyptic survival genre. So Last of Us is also on this list. And this is a game where I've, I've kind of always been surprised that people love this game so much because it seems like, I mean, it seems like and is like such a dour and intense experience to, to play. I think it's a testament to the singularity of Naughty Dog's vision that people like find this experience meaningful and worth it. Uh, but I also, it always makes me think, especially when we're talking about Ellie, who is a queer character, like representation is always important. I'm never going to not say it's not important, but I don't really care about my action figures becoming more diverse. I'm more interested in whether or not queer people are getting to tell queer stories. And when I look at The Last of Us, I I don't necessarily feel like this is a story about queerness that's for me, that's for me a queer person. I know people definitely disagree with me, right? Um, but there's like little things, you know. Uh, the Last of Us, I mean, it's just like such an intensely dark game. And it has such an intensely negative view of the human race. 
that I, it, sometimes you play it and you feel like you're reading Thomas Ligotti, like the, the case against the human race, right? I remember I, right when the pandemic started when I was in quarantine um, and I moved in with my boyfriend. Uh, my boyfriend had played Last of Us and I hadn't at that time. So I wanted to play it with him so I could understand what people, what he likes about it. And I was playing it and we were, you know, we we're in a, a government mandated quarantine and we are not really allowed outside. And we're wearing masks and stuff. We hear sirens every day. And we are under like threat of violence for a time in New York, there was a curfew. And like people were really enforcing that curfew. And in the game, what you see are people despondent and broken and betraying each other and killing each other for food. But what I saw outside my window was like people donating hundreds of dollars of mutual aid and shit. And like people, I got to know every single person on my block during quarantine because we all needed someone to go and grab something from the bodega maybe, you know? That experience of, you know, I would always sit in my fire escape window and just like people would need to say hello to someone while they're on their walks because that's the only human interaction that they get. And the way that the city that I lived in came together in response to not just the grief of like losing normal life to a deadly virus, but also the grief of losing black people to the police and the grief of like watching your friends go out to protest that and seeing them, you know, end up in lockup with their arms broken and shit. You know, it, it, it really struck me. It is a cynical game and it's cynicism always strikes me when I think about it. And I think that some people mistake cynicism for depth sometimes yeah. because it is true that things don't always turn out okay and it is true you know that you're uh, sometimes the child that you're ferrying across the united states <laughs> to be the cure for the deadly virus <laughs> you don't want her to die i right, guess right that's um, yes that's the last of us yeah yeah you know i i get it but it, it always i'm just like this is your king <laughs> 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 Uh, this is your number five king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I I think that again it touches on that conversation about cinema that we were having. Same. I I think. I mean, honestly, Last of Us. I got to the end of it and it was just wait, what? Really? <laughs> you see I the giraffe and you kill those people and the game over. I can't. I can't relate to this. And and I I think that's exactly right. I think there there is a for me right. People can disagree with this. For me, it is it's cynical trying to be deep and it just doesn't feel that deep it's just oh this this guy's kind of whack and i mean i have to say this yeah i have to, I have to say <laughs> yes yeah. you don't even you don't even need to go deeper on joel than like this guy's kind of whack yeah <laughs> the best way you, well, you just look at like right like you know we're all people of color here if i was in a community of like-minded people like joel is in the beginning of that game where he's his freaking his relatives live nearby and like yeah they're in this intense situation where like zombies are happening but like after the dust clears, if I was in that situation, I know everybody in that block would be in the black church and they would be talking about what they were going what to do for do? each other. Yeah. And Sorry, the thing is, if we were all in The Last of Us, uh, we'd be dead oh, because true. you cannot be a person of color and make it through <laughs> right. the last of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rule so. number one of, well, a lot of games. A lot of movies. Yeah, right? definitely. Like, I, I, yeah. Enough has been said about yeah, the yeah, last yeah. Of us, probably. Yeah. Well, let me. Oh, let me yeah. Yeah. No, I was literally just gonna bounce off the thing you said about not being able to uh, uh, kind of like relate to that game, and I think there was this like moment in the 2010s, like mostly near the beginning, where a lot of games there was there was like this term being bandied about called the dadding of games. Right? Yes, a lot of white old dudes that had kids 
we're making games all around the same time. Like you see it in God of War, mm-hmm. also right. on this list. Totally. You know, Last of Us, Bioshock, Bioshock is all about all that shit. Yeah. Caring um, for your daughter. And th- that was also paired with a sort of like new lens of like you know trying to like take the language of prestige television into like the way that they play cinematics and like play at like seriousness in video games and mm-hmm. they like kind of mesh those together to try to you know uh uh appeal to the idea like people who uh really like the sopranos might also like the last of us or something right, right. but it it kind of misses on some of that characterization and it is like like we we're saying i think we all agree that's actually like a very cynical view of what how communities would come together uh because in that game they don't no like the, you yeah. rarely there see there is no uh, ame zionist church for everyone in the game you know? <laughs> right. like um but yeah i uh you know i think that a lot of the 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 praise for it definitely gets gets kind of caught up in uh this sort of grow, growing up moment right. that gets attributed to uh it like games are grown up now like we're they can be taken seriously. Right. When, it's like, real art. They can be dark. Right. They can be, yeah. right. It, it, right. Totally, when, totally. Like, there are games from before that and th- that have happened since that I consider better art than, than like, right. those, like, that type of game. Speaking my, of games being dark, Kato, how many JRPGs have you played where you've literally killed God? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 We, we've been doing this. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but we're just swing hard the other direction, right? Like the 2010s is also an era of the emergence of the indie game as mm-hmm. like a, a thing. We have a couple on this list. We have Outer Wilds. We have yeah. Stardew on this list. But there are games being made by people, you know, in their bedrooms uh, to be played by 70 people, right? And those are games about things like substance abuse and domestic violence or about their faith or about their relationship to their kids, whatever. Like the, the, the gamut is run in right. the world of video games now, but those are not the games that get the advertisement during the NBA Finals, that's Call of Duty. Do you know what I mean? And so one of the biggest, most interesting frustrations with the games industry in the 2010s is if you know where to dig, if you know how to do your own curation, you can find really interesting deep cuts from independent developers who are telling the sorts of stories that prove that games are an art form to the degree that we don't need to have that debate anymore. Mm -hmm. But up at the top on the surface, it's still the same stuff where... You, the people feel like they need to beat their chest and show how dark and cynical they can be to show that that they hang with The Walking Dead or with The, the Road. road. <laughs> Boom. Like, right? like, that's like, oh, well, how do we prove that we're art? We got to do The Road. And that's like, it's so, it's kind of a misplaced desire when instead, like, I think you want to prove that you're art, you just make good art instead of trying to appeal to what's already established. Here's, here's something that hit me is that I think from... From the perspective of somebody who is not a games journalist, right? For just your average gamer, right? For all the conversation that we've all seen, I'm sure, because we're all on the internet about ethics in games journalism. And, and, oh, these journalists are just picking all the woke games, right? We talked to a whole bunch of journalists and games journalists and people in the industry. This is where the survey results are coming from. And I think in the whole in the whole top 10, and I think in the top five, I'm not sure if there's any game that passes the Bechtel test. And if it does, it skates by. And this is, again, the Bechtel test being, are there two women who talk to each, there are two women who are characters that have names and talk to each other about anything other than a man. Yeah. And this and is not like a barometer of how feminist something is. Of right? course, of course. But, but it's it's a like, it's a low, it's yeah, a really it's low bar. Able to hop and over that bar. We ain't clearing that bar. Yes. Which which no. is to say that I mean for me, this is like God of War. I played through God of War. 
If I, there are not two alive women in that. Game. No, there are. There are. I, I got God of War. I got uh, to the end of God of War, and I enjoyed it. And I think part part of what my beef with God of War is right is that I actually really liked the previous three, mm-hmm. and then I get to this one, and just the whole time, just man, I can't get into it. And then first of all, it's that bratty kid. I wanted to smack that kid <laughs> myself okay. when he started acting up. I I I just about lost it right there. When they, so, when but, they first Sony, go. When they first go to Elfenheim, the elf land, and the, the Kratos is just like, stay close to me, touch nothing. I was like, when did my dad get in this <laughs> But But with, aside from that, it's, I realized that the thing is, I don't care about Norse mythology, and I just couldn't get into it. And then it made me realize, maybe this is kind of like the Witcher issue too, that, oh, did I only like God of War because I do like the Greco-Roman mythology? Because I am into that. Was it the strength of the source material? Mm. Because the thing is, I get to the end of God of War, and I'm just, I just watched a Marvel movie. Man. I just watched a Marvel movie. And yo, <laughs> yo I, a, right lot of people, a lot of people love Marvel movies. That's right. cool. I don't spend my time on them because it's just not my flavor. And then I got to the end of it, and I was just, oh, man. With, with, uh, with Last of Us, I don't know, man. It's, again, it's just, you get to the end of it, it's just, this guy's whack. So I, I, I name-checked Thomas Ligotti earlier, yeah. and, and the thing it actually reminds me of from Ligotti, Ligotti famously um, wrote The Case Against the Human Race, which is a, a novella-length essay about why it is the duty of current humanity to just allow us all to die out because we are ruining this planet. Like, he is a deep, deep misanthrope. He straight up thinks that humanity, the continued existence of humanity is evil. He has this also novella called My Work Is Not Yet Done. It's a man who dies and he like can't remember how he dies, but he remembers that part of the reason why, what he was gonna do before he died was get one up on all of his coworkers that he hates. And at the end of the book, he realizes that he, he walked in front of a bus because he couldn't think of a more compelling reason for his revenge than they were mean to me so they had to die. And I think that that Thomas Ligotti novella has this is a lot more about the cynical mindset yeah. than the last of us necessarily does, right? I, the thing about Thomas Ligotti is that he writes these characters that are meant to be immensely hateable, like pure evil, like dripping with cynicism with no regard for life. Joel is also that guy, but the game is like, and he was a cool dad. <laughs> and it's High just, five. Yeah. Like, and I, I, think, I think the thing, I think, I guess the thing that I'm trying to get at here is as much conversation, especially in the last few years of this decade, right, that we've been having in and among the game industry, right, is that, look, the kind of stories that we're telling, maybe we need more, maybe we a little bit bigger spread in the kind of creativity we're seeing. But if you look at three of the top five, it's about emotionally broken men doing emotionally broken men's stuff. And I love me a story about an old broken dude. That's great. <laughs> but... I don't know if I want that time after time after time. Yeah. Switch it up every once in a while. Up next at number four, the Norse revival of a somewhat dormant franchise, God of War. God of War. I mean, a game that I am hot and cold on sometimes, a game I really, really like. I don't even know if I put it in my own personal top five from the decade, but I do think that it was important to the culture, right? I feel like this was a point where... We, we, yes, we now acknowledge that yes, video games can tell these massive Hollywood stories that gain critical acclaim. 
um, and that, that can be emotionally affecting and can be written with like a lot of different layers in the symbolism. Like really obvious to my eyes because I play a lot of video games and I read a lot of books, but I think for a lot of other people who did not know that video games were capable of having imparting these emotions onto people were, were shocked and surprised. I come back to that game now and I'm just like, this is high key, just a dead wife game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and dead mom. And it's dead both. mom. Right. Yeah. Right. Both multiple yeah. times, yeah. actually. It's like a little bit, it's as egregious as Christopher Nolan making Interstellar a movie where he does both dead wife and a strange <laughs> daughter as a way to give that main character that's not very interesting some pathos. And like, yeah, you know, it's really, like, even the women that are alive in that game, of which there is one, they don't really have a lot of, they, they are exposition machines, generally speaking, and they don't have their own motivations. Everything revolves around this. Like something that comic books got like a huge amount of shit for back in the 90s is something that video games are still having to get over. I mean, I, as much as I like uh, tearing dark elves in half <laughs> and like shooting, throwing a spear at Right, them. that game feels very good to oh, play. Yeah. And I think that that, that that can provide cover in some ways. That plus deploying very familiar cinematic storytelling techniques. Mm. Right, um, right. It turns out that like we understand because of years of watching film what a wide shot is supposed to do versus yeah. what yeah. like a close-up is supposed to do to us emotionally. Mm -hmm. The actors on that game did a really good job of imbuing moment-to-moment -moment stuff with a great deal of emotion. Mm -hmm. And and so I don't want to take anything away from it in, in that realm, but I, I don't think when you then start to compare it to like films about fatherhood in a similar way, the breadth of what's available currently in big budget film is just so much wider than what's available in games. And, you know, the, for me, the thing is like, okay, I hope God of War is the first step towards games, or not the first step, but a step towards a broader uh, range of what is emotionally available in video game storytelling. But it's not going to ever be like the thing on the mountain for me. Yeah, One I mean, of, I'm sorry. No. One of the big things that they, kept, they marketed that game on too was the the single shot. Right, yes. the like single shot thing, which is a big thing in cinema. Like, it's really hard to pull off single shot movies, right? right. Like, think about Atonement or like recently, nineteen seventeen. Just like that is uh, like Marvel to pull off in when you have like real cameras and real sets, and like <laughs> obviously there's tricks that they're using, digital tricks. Right. But in yeah. games, it's the like slow down in the in going through the caves and stuff like that, loading. Yeah, that that in games that becomes all. It's like it's much more of a spectacle, a spectacle because it's. Uh, a little easier to manipulate all that, right? Yeah. But they're trying to they were trying to sell it hard on that because it was something that people recognize as a hard thing to do in film. It's like baby's first cinematic technique, right? right? You know, <laughs> it, it really is like one of the first markers I learned as someone who studied film of this is an act a director making an intentional choice about how he uses the camera to tell the story, right? You want to see everyone in their environment. Like there's a there's a there's some decent wonders in movies. I can't think of one at the top of my head, but you want to see every character in their environment doing exactly what it is they do naturally. Then you make this camera a seamless and fluid part of the way that information is portrayed. But like when it happens in God of War, like every time I saw the camera jiggle like it was on a steady cam, like someone <laughs> is physically holding it, I just wanted to be like, there's nobody there. <laughs> there's no man there. Right, right. Well, like that speaks to a much bigger debate inside of game development circles, especially when you broaden that conversation out to include independent developers, alt game developers, people who are making art projects that are happen to be games, which is to what degree should video games be beholden to the technique that are uh, from other from other kind of um, media uh, industries. Like, to what degree should a game look like and feel like a movie or like a book 
or like a music video, right? And and for me, I want a, a, a world where games are pulling from all of that stuff. And I think you look at even just this list, um, you know, look at the whole top 10, for instance, and you see an industry that's really invested in drawing in the audience that understands film, the audience that likes that stuff. And I don't want to say that that's the only thing there, because two of the other games in this top five list, Breath of the Wild and Dark Souls, I think are both leaning really hard into video game-ness, the stuff that only games can do, uh, that games can can immerse you in a space, can can provide you a sense of interconnectivity between locations A and B, etc. I'm sure we'll talk more about all these games uh, again in the future at some point, but like, you know, I think that there's an interesting line to cut there between the God, God of Wars and Red Dead Redemptions on this list, and then the Dark Souls in the Breath of the Wilds, you know? Number three in the countdown is Rockstar's controversial cowboy blockbuster. If Kato is surprised Destiny's off the list, then I'm the person who's surprised that Red Dead Redemption 2 made it into the top five. I mean, this is a game that was marred uh, during its mm. launch cycle with a lot of very good reporting about uh, labor abuses, exploitation, uh, and also, frankly, like when it was released, it, it maybe got some good reviews, but there wasn't this huge upswelling of people who loved it as much as they even loved other stuff by Rockstar, like GTA V or something like that. Um, and so, you know, for me, like look at that list and see, like, oh, here is this thing, Red Dead Redemption 2, that in some ways is a, represent- is a representation of so much that goes wrong with this industry in terms of crunch, which is when people who make these games work for 50, 60, 70 hour weeks over and over and over again, sometimes for years at a time, uh, to some of the content that's in the game. Like there is just a, 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 a messiness here that to me, holds it back from being one of the things I would personally put in a top 10 list, let alone the top five of that top 10. Right. I think the only thing I would say to that, Austin, is the the legacy of Red Dead Redemption 2 is more, I would say, actually the legacy of Red Dead Online, where Red Dead Online is an experience where players have been playing that consistently since it's been released and is now, I believe, its own sort of package game that you can get, where Red Dead Redemption 2 seems to be more uh, a sort of a prerequisite to being able to play this massive like multiplayer online like western game and that's where people just sort of like to use like like what rockstar tends to do and do very well is like they use it as a playground while i do think the game itself just like for me it's like a representation of everything that video game people get wrong when they try to make something cinematic right Remember the cinematic mode button on Red Dead Redemption 2 when you're yes. riding your horse because you can't fast travel. You can press a cinematic button and then it looks like cinema because they letterbox it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> pick random yeah. uh, camera angles. There, yeah. there, was, there, was a lot, there was a lot of that in the last, yeah. in the last, I mean, shoot, God of War. Coming up next, Breath of the Wild and Dark Souls battle it out for the number one spot. It's funny that we've spent a lot of words talking about how frustrated we are at the cynicism of The Last of Us because the two other games on this list, Breath of the Wild, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, yeah, yeah. and Dark Souls are both games about humanity giving into its hubris, pushing themselves to the brink of devastation, and then raising questions as to whether or not it is worth going forward at all. 
Uh, obviously, those two games arrive at different answers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wild is right. this deeply optimistic, community-driven thing about bringing people together, reckoning with with the the mistakes that you made, and solving a bunch of puzzles and fighting big monsters along the way. It is a masterpiece. It is it is probably my favorite game of the decade. Um, it is hard to compete with what Nintendo can do. The other game is Dark Souls, and not only does it lean that far into it, it actually kind of tries to wrap around at the end and kind of say like, actually, maybe the next step forward should be darker than this. Maybe we go even further all the way into the darkness that wraps around into a sort of optimism. But that's also this just like very traditional trope filled familiar space of dark medieval fantasy. Everything is falling apart and decrepit and ruined. And that's on its face. We should have the same issues with those games in a way as we maybe do with the last of us or God of war. And yet there is something about the way dark souls creates its world it it grounds all of that uh all of that darkness in something in, in a particular history in stories that you're kind of piecing together almost similar to the way you do in outer wilds uh uh, uh when you're trying to like put together like okay i read this item description that talks about this ancient god and then i go and i fight this boss and they mention that god are those two things connected Be- between that stuff and the way the world is built and interconnected and everything else even though it is it is cloaked in that sort of shadow, it's a game that doesn't put you in that mode where you're just passively passively observing dark, cynical things happening. You're at least like trying to intercede here or there, trying to make sense of things in a way that I think, for me at least, is just a far more enjoyable way to engage with games than to kind of put the controller down, sit back, and then see misery happen on the screen. So as we said, top two is between Breath of the Wild and Dark Souls. And it turns out the number two spot in our survey was Breath of the Wild. Ah. Which means <laughs> that Dark Souls is number one. Darkness prevails. Wow. God damn. damn. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I can already I'm see sorry. it. I'm sorry. I just, when I close my eyes and think about Breath of the Wild, I can like, it's like burned in on my eyeballs. I can smell it, which doesn't make any it sense. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I can smell how yeah. it feels. I swear yeah. I can feel the breeze because when you see those individual bright green blades of grass and the clear blueness of that sky, it is like the way that as a child, you imagine the outdoors when you're stuck inside, you know? When you're like, I just want to go play around in the woods or some shit. That's what you imagine what it looks like. And they brought that to life. It's expression of nature is so, so beautiful. <laughs> and I think the things that it says about humanity and humanity's tendency to overstep its bounds, to perpetuate war, to perpetuate conflict when you don't have to, it says it from a place of like a, a, a mom who knows why you <laughs> scraped your knee and it was because you were running too fast. And now you're going to, it's uh, a gentle little message, you know, slow down little one, you know? Don't use so many drones in your warfare. <laughs> 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 it's wow, a okay. weird thing to say in a Zelda game, but that is like- That is like of, 100% what it's yeah. saying. Like you, every time you fight one of those ancient statues, like that's just a drone. There's some controller for that that's long dead. Yeah. It's why it's Someone just, in Las Vegas. Some ancient yeah. Xbox piloting, controller. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on. So, so you, you disagree with the order? I just like, I think it's a perfect video game and it makes <laughs> Ooh, me really happy. Okay. I always value experiences. I'm like a naturally upset person. Like I'm mad all the time about everything. So when I play something that can, the media that makes you feel joy, like making someone feel joy is a very difficult thing to do. Like pure joy. Like not just I'm so hype because that is Spider-Man up on the screen. I love my boy Spider-Man. But like <laughs> a moment of exuberance. And like Breath of the Wild is 
just a domino effect of like, once you play that game and you know what systems inside and out, you just have those moments of just feeling like you could do anything that you could like, you could, you can be the purest expression of who you want to be in that video game, you know, and you can solve problems in the way that feel most natural to you. It's like a very, very good kindergarten teacher where the one that is like, oh, I see that you were interested in the scissors. How about some construction paper? (laughs) (laughs) Build something. And Dark Souls is like, is like, I mean, I think the reputation of Dark Souls is the opposite, which is it is just a pair of loose, non-safety scissors out and like, all right, go for it. You stabbed yourself too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Big bean dad energy, right? (laughs) Um, the, the, but at the same time, Dark Souls, I think is, I think I'm with Gita in that if I would swap that order, but I get why Dark Souls is there at number one, which is like, it really shaped so much of the conversation around games for the last decade because uh, okay. it 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 reminded people that they liked to play games that could be a little bit more difficult that didn't have lots of tutorialization lots of telling you what you're supposed to do markers on the screen that said go here go do this go do this and in fact Breath of the Wild learns from that and part of the reason why Breath of the Wild is so good sorry I feel like 100%. I stole Tato's point no I was just going to say earlier when we were talking about this that both of these games kind of uh, do more by saying less you know right. like totally. they, it it's both they're they're both like set out to um let you explore a world and uh they go about it kind of in different ways dark souls is a little more linear and breath of the wild is more open but they both um have just like on like basic basic video game terms they have less cinematics than like most other like totally. big budget games right yeah they have less uh sort of uh telling you what the story is and more it's like you're making a story as you play yeah. right the act of you going through the world is what makes the narrative everyone's story is going to be different in uh in breath of the wild for sure because it's literally uh after you do a first like kind of tutorial island almost and you get all your powers you can go anywhere Anywhere else, you can go beat the final boss, and like speedrunners do that. Like yeah, right. speedrunners, like or whatever, yeah, right? like, skip boom, everything done, else, done, done. go into the into the castle, and they're good enough to just kill the boss immediately. Um, but just like the kind of openness that they have there, alongside these um, the systems that they've made in that game, where uh, things like the elements—fire, rain, lightning, uh, gravity—like all of these things that they allow you to manipulate with those powers—makes the world feel like you know, the sense of physics and, like, the sense of, like, reality, like, it, it really grounds you as, like, a, per, a small person kind of, like, you know, pushing at the edges of uh, a, a world that you don't really know much about, right? Totally. And it doesn't ever hand you, like, complete, like, like easy answers. Uh, and Dark Souls does this even more, right? Like, Dark Souls... <laughs> it was a response in some ways right. to the Zeldification of video games where you look at Twilight Princess and then Skyward Sword, the two previous Zelda games, which were just constantly interrupting gameplay to say, hey, listen, <laughs> go do this, go do that. Iconic. Hey, hey, listen. Hey, listen. <laughs> um, and, and Dark Souls was like, nah, like you listen to the world, homie. Right. Like just go out there, figure it out yourself. You can do this. And people were surprised at how rewarding that was. I, I do think that some of the marketing around Dark Souls oversells its difficulty. It makes it feel like it's supposed to be some badge of honor just to have played that game. And like, it's a video game, and it's a, it's a hard video game, but you can still do all the stuff you do in other RPGs. You can grind. You can you know take your time. You can look up answers. You can call on other people to help you. So it's not like it's... I, I, don't, I don't like thinking about it as this, like, there's a mountain you have to climb, and it's called Dark Souls or anything like that. But instead, I think that it's it's kind of a masterpiece at teaching you how to play the game 
without telling you it's teaching you how to play the game. The levels teach you how to move through the levels safely by punishing you when you do it wrong, right? Um, and I think the combination of, of those two games at one and two, I think is whatever the order ends up being in your own personal heart, I think is, is kind of a perfect way to, to cap off uh, the, the 2010s. Okay, so you would put Zelda at the top. I would put Zelda on the top just because I value joy. And I feel like Dark Souls, to, I want to know the lore of Dark Souls because enough people have told me that it's actually a story about anti-capitalism. But <laughs> I also feel like there is so much dourness in the world that I don't want to enter a dour universe. I'd rather have that message spoon-fed to me with primary colors. <laughs> so I am, I'm going to say, and I, I don't really have too much to say about the order of the rest of these, but if I was to put, I, honestly, I think, I think that Dark Souls is in a good place. I would put Dark Souls above Zelda. So I have a weird sort of perspective on this because I played Dark Souls and Zelda concurrently recently mm. during the pandemic so i got to take a late pass on on dark souls and i found myself look the world sucks everything outside is terrible i found myself not wanting to just escape into some magical fairyland because i know that's not realistic now dark souls i probably never cursed more in my life <laughs> right and i i found that look when you play zelda for me when you play breath of the wild an afternoon goes like that Man, 10 minutes in Dark Souls feels like a year. Yeah. I had this binge where I think I played just weekend. I just woke up Saturday, played, went to sleep, woke up, played, went to sleep. And it felt like three weeks had passed. And there's just something in there where I feel like in Dark Souls, you are, you're confronting something and you're really confronting how difficult something can be and like you said i don't i'm not super into the oh dark souls is hard like i don't i don't think that i don't think that breath of the wild being up in the top 10 or near the top is controversial at all i don't think it's controversial at all to say breath of the wild is a great game i do think it's controversial to say for your average gamer that dark souls is a great game because a lot of people will say oh it's whack it's too hard it's broken there's all sorts of things wrong with it sure but if you give it time. I found it, I found for me, it was rewarding to A, push myself up against a challenge, but also B, to see those little sparks of hope when you read the markings that other people wrote mm -hmm. that, oh, I did it, or oh, I can't do it. It's just, oh, <laughs> Dark Souls for me, it's, it's a lonely game, but it gives you these little sparks of you're not alone. And just for me emotionally, at this moment in time, during a quarantine, I feel like that's what I needed. So I'm, I'm going to keep it at spot one. I agree. That's all I'm going to say. I agree. And that is a wrap for this season of Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. It's been fun. It's been weird. And I'll see you all again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, it's a hard video to explain. I have no idea what Why? You talk about food bats. <laughs> I was trying to explain to them, no, look, it was this really funny video. And it's true. It's actually really smart. It's what, listen, I think the food bed should. The food bed is a legitimate <laughs> concept. Next. Yeah. Listen, we got to get on Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> get them to fund investment. the food bed. Yeah. Hopefully the vaccine comes soon. Yeah. Hopefully the. Here's hoping. If Cuomo can stop throwing the fuck out. What's up? If Cuomo can stop throwing him out. Just every. Oh, man. I'm going to fight that dude. I don't give a shit. I could take him. His little model mountain. Oh, watch that. Just play him Tekken. 